Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. We're going to be talking about the DC books for the week of July 20th, 2021. Continuing the Infinite Frontier initiative. Uh, nine books, less than last week, only one uh, anthology. And I don't know how you feel, Rocky, but uh, I think this was a pretty darn good week. Yeah, I I have to say uh, overall I'm yeah I'm I'm happy I'm I'm impressed I'm even uh, you know I'll be ranting a little bit about Bendis this week but there's yeah. there's there might even there might be some might, there might be some uh, silver lining in in that storyline moving forward too who knows like I got some theories and but yeah I I was I was impressed and Grant Morrison uh, was impressive Nightwing continues to impress. Uh, beautiful debut, but with blue and gold, Dan Jurgens. Good to have him back on the scene, and yeah, some uh, good stuff. Yeah, uh, for everybody that listened last week, thanks for reaching out. Um, there will be no big blowups this week, <laughs> at least as far as I know. Uh, not, not as much controversy this week, and I think overall, nothing was a real stinker. You know, uh, Justice League sixty-five, I think, is the issue. Nonwithstanding, uh, Bendis and what he's done will certainly have something to say about that. But you always have the Justice League dark in the back to kind of temper that, which isn't uh, a bad thing. So uh, let's go ahead and dive in. First book we're going to talk about is Nightwing number 82. Uh, Nightwing Leaping into the Light Part 5. This is still continuing the first story arc for writer Tom Taylor. We have Bruno Redondo on art, but this time he's joined by Rick Leonardi and Neil Edwards. Uh, Redondo, Andy Lanning, and Scott Hanna on inks. And that, that's interesting that Andy Lanning, most people know him as a writer, but he's a very talented inker as well. Uh, Adriana Lucas on colors, Wes Abbott on letters. And uh, maybe, maybe one thing overall to add about the week that is uh, in DC, I feel like in a way, it's sort of retcon week here at DC Comics where we're adding in all this stuff that uh, is a retcon. And we certainly saw that seed planted, big blow up last week, our last issue with Nightwing 81 with uh, Marley, right? That's her name, Marley Zucone. Melinda. Uh, revealing Melinda, sorry. Well, I Mal think I do that all the time. I call her Marley. But yes, Melinda Zucone, who claims to be the sister of Dick Grayson yeah. and it's Zuko. I think you said Zuko and it's Melinda Zuko. Yeah, Mark. Yes. Mar yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, Tony. Yeah. yeah. Tony, Tony Zuko's brother or, or daughter rather Tony Zuko being the mobster that killed Dick's parents uh, that killed the Grayson's. And again, we had some theories when this first came to light in terms of her saying to dick that yeah i'm i'm your sister and you know we were kind of thinking well maybe she was undercover maybe she's not really telling the truth but i don't know based on the story that's told here it seems like it could be true or is it just a scam they're running on dick Grayson? like i i don't know i have mixed feelings because again this is something that they're saying has been in place for for decades and we're talking about something that affects Dick Grayson. Um, and Batman's the world's greatest detective. So you're telling me all, all this time, Batman never knew? Or did he know and not say something? I I don't know. I, I have some I have mixed feelings about this whole plot line and, and 
Melinda Zuko claiming to be Dick Grayson's sister. I I, I, I don't know how to feel. It's interesting. It's it's great. We're expanding the uh, supporting cast of Dick Grayson, but I don't know. I, I will say, and I'll let Rocky talk a little more about the specific events that occurred in this issue, but I will say, you know, the the first thing that left a bad taste in my mouth when Tom Taylor dropped this bombshell last issue, which then went and fueled even more of a speculator craze for issue was it 78, which was his first issue and is the first appearance of Melinda Zuko. Um, the thing that left a bad taste in my mouth was, okay, so now we're saying that basically Dick Grayson's dad cheated on his mom. Like there was no previous, you know, inclination of that. And then according to the events of this one, uh, Melinda Zuko's mother actually got together with John Grayson before, uh, Dick's mom and he got together, which also was kind of weird as it's explained in this issue. So I, I, I don't know. The timeline, I guess, is what I'm saying is where I so, it sort of falls down a little bit for me. Um, and the fact that this was never mentioned before, which is always a problem I have with retcons. And I talk, I've often used Court of Owls as a great example. Yeah, it's a cool idea that Scott Snyder came up with and him and uh, – and Greg Capullo and Jonathan Glapion and FCO Placencia and everybody, they did a great job of, of fleshing it out and building it up in terms of integrating into Gotham City's history. But the problem I have with it is if we're to believe Batman is as smart as he is and as great a detective as he is and all-knowing as he is, how could this uh, organization have existed underneath his nose all this time? I feel the same way about, about this. How could Melinda Zuko have existed all this time and and Bruce Wayne never never known so I, I don't know that's where it sort of falls down for me um, is the story you know like set that aside is the story still good is the story still compelling does Tom Taylor still give a you know great character moments and great characterization for Dick Grayson and Barbara Gordon yes very much so so um, there's even some really cool moments in here where you know Dick was captured in the last issue. And Oracle sort of called in the cavalry and we see they're all heading to rescue Dick in this moment. And she calls him off at the last second per Dick's instructions when he doesn't feel that he's in danger from Melinda Zuko. Um, but again, that part of, I mean, Batman's one of the guys headed there. I don't think just because Oracle said, okay, he's fine. He wants you to turn around. I don't actually think Batman would turn around. Nobody's going to tell Batman what to do. Batman's going to go, he's going to show up. And that, that might have, you know, not to play script doctor, but that might have actually been better, right, for Batman to show up, Bruce to show up and tell Dick, yeah, you know, I just, I did know this, but I didn't know if you would want to know, so I kept it to myself. But then I could see it going both ways, fans complaining what a dick Batman is for keeping it to himself, didn't Dick have a right to know. But I don't know, it does, the, the fact that Batman apparently doesn't know, I don't know that that sits well with me. You know, so again, it's it's the inherent problem with any retcon, right? Um, you go back and insert all the different retcons at the time that they were made. It, it you know, imagine how what how convoluted and confusing the origin stories would be um, if you went back and added everything in at the time. I almost feel like if you're a comic writer who's creating a new character now, and you think there's any chance of that character being enduring, plant all sorts of seeds for other things that. <laughs> writers can decades from now pick up and go, oh, yeah, this was this and that was that. I, I know that's impossible to do. It wouldn't even actually work, but that's kind of the only solution here, you know. Um, 
and it, it just something that in, that's inherent and always going to cause problems when we start talking about characters that are decades and decades old. New writers come in, they want to tell their own ideas and their own stories. And oftentimes this is the way you have to do it, even though it doesn't jive with history. So uh, the art I thought was fine. I, I, I do prefer just having straight Bruno Redondo art um, just because his art's so fantastic. At least Leonardi uh, and Edwards, at least their, their stuff's sort of in the past. So it does work. It's, it, it's not too jarring. It makes sense. Well, yeah, it's a different style, but it's the flashbacks and it, it helps to indicate that those are the flashbacks. Um, and it lets Bruno Redondo stay on schedule. So great colors, great pacing. The dialogue is, is great as always with Tom Taylor. There's no hokey dialogue or anything. Mostly it's just a personal thing that retcons for me always, they just kind of bother me a, a little bit and there's really no way to, to fix it. So, uh, anyway, what did you think, Rocky? Well, I'm a little bit more forgiving than you are. I'm I'm less bothered by the by the fact that Batman doesn't know this. I mean, I you know Batman's a genius, but I, I think I think we have to be careful not to you know assume that Batman is om, omnipotent. Or I mean, I, is is Batman really expected to know the the sex lives of uh, of John Grayson before he got together with Mary Grayson and he he had sex with a with a woman by the name of um, Miley Lynn. Who uh, is uh, who is Melinda? You know, uh, who is who is Melinda Zuko's uh, mother? And uh, yeah, I mean, they had an affair, and it and John John clearly John Grayson died. Dick Grayson's father died, never knowing he had a daughter. He died, that is uh, true. and he was yeah. killed by Tony Zuko. And he, he was and the Graysons, the Flying Graysons were were killed. The hit was made by Tony Zuko and the Flying Graysons for other reasons. Uh, uh, other than the fact that uh, Tony Zuko maybe always resented or suspected that uh, Melinda was not his actual daughter, uh, but but this to me adds something to the mythos, and I'm gonna give I'm actually gonna give Tom Taylor uh, uh, the same compliment I gave Jeremy Adams on the Flash, not to not to uh, bring back our argument of last week, but <laughs> I think that Tom Taylor. Uh, I think he, I think he's added something. I think this adds a richness to uh, the past, and I don't think it contradicts anything. I think it enhances it a little bit, and and I I really like the fact that Melinda is Melinda Zuko is the same. They're essentially the same age as uh, you know he's the, she's the same age as Dick Grayson, and they're seemingly on opposite ends here. And I really like the the question here is you know there's a lot of questions about uh, Melinda Zuko. Okay, now she's the mayor of Bloodhaven, but is she corrupt? Uh, to what degree is she corrupt? If she's the daughter of Tony Zuko, she must be corrupt. But but Tony Zuko was taken out by by Blockbuster, or or I, I believe he he was. Blockbuster killed. Uh, I think wasn't that Tony Zuko that Blockbuster killed in in the opening issue? Yeah. I think that was. And so her her own father then would have would have been killed by Blockbuster, and Blockbuster ends up and sh showing up here at the end of this issue. And, you know, uh, and I was particularly, I thought there were, this had some uh, emotional highlights in it where M M Miley Lynn, uh, Melinda's mother, you know, she, you know, she meets Dick Grayson and, and right away she sees in Dick's, Dick Grayson, she sees John Grayson's eyes in Dick. And so, so there's a callback there. And, and while, you know, while they've had this reunion following that, you know, Melinda Zuko is told that, uh, you know, as she's escorting Dick out of the building, I mean, she's t told that the Blockbuster is at the door. And, 
you know, so it, it ends. This was definitely a character. This was a moving the plot forward. This was a major revelation. And I thought it was really nice. Uh, you mentioned before, uh, Jace, about how I really like how this Tom Taylor suggests just how much Dick Grayson is loved. You know, at the beginning there when he had, he needed help. And the, I mean, Batman, uh, Donna Troy, the Titans, every Starfire, they're willing to show up at a moment's notice just to help Dick Grayson out. I really like the callback there. Dick Grayson is a guy who was loved. He has family. And, but now he has, you know, and, and the funny thing is, is that Dick's great, Dick Grayson's family has always been heroes. They've always been heroes, heroic. And here we got a hint that maybe, you know, guess what? Maybe Dick Grayson's dad, uh, John, maybe he wasn't, uh, John Grayson. I was, I wasn't clear if he was technically cheating on Mary Grayson or it was, be, it was before, it was before he started seeing Mary uh, I think it was before. I, I, I was a little bit unclear in the timeline there, but the fact that I, Dick Grayson, you know, maybe he's got he's got a now he's got a half sister who um, who might be corrupt. But I suspect that there's more to this, and I, I think we're going to be getting some. Uh, I think we're going to be getting some pretty good revelations here. This is not just character building. But this is um, myth. This is building the mythology of Dick Grayson, a mythology that we didn't know, and it doesn't take away from his history. I I, I like to think it enhances it, and I, I I echo your comments on the art. I think it works very well. So uh, I was I was quite happy with this overall. Yeah, when uh, when Miley Lee's uh, telling Dick, she she does say. Um, Please understand they weren't together yet. It was only because John had put Mary on such a high pedestal that he was oblivious that she'd put him on one too. So it sounds like she knew in a way that that the Graysons were going to get together, that they were supposed to be together, but they weren't together yet. So I, I did appreciate that because, like I said, it did bother me to think that um, John and Grayson would have cheated on on Mary. Um, yeah. But apparently that, that was before. Uh, and, and I do agree with you. It's great that, that Dick Grayson – the heroes of the DC, you, the superheroes of the DC, you care so much about them, they'll drop anything and come at a moment's notice. But he has always been an orphan, uh, and maybe that's not the case anymore in terms of him having, uh, you know, blood relation here, uh, having a, a half sister. I do like that idea. I will tell you one thing that will really bother me, though. For God's sake, do not give Melinda Zuko any sort of superpowers, and do not put in a costume. Uh, <laughs> If if you want to use her as supporting cast, um, certainly have her smart, have her capable, have her, you know, maybe politically savvy and have her help Dick Grayson out in that way. But I really would not want to see her in a costume. The Bat family has enough costumed members, as it were. I'd prefer her much more in an Alfred type role. And she does say at the end, uh, like you mentioned, um, when Blockbuster shows up after Dick has heard the story from uh, – from Miley Lee, he's talking to Melinda and says, she doesn't know the truth about you, does she? She doesn't know what you really are. And he's referring to what Rocky was saying earlier about the fact that she's agreeing to run Bloodhaven for for Blockbuster and she appears to be corrupt. Um, and I love the, the response from Melinda. She goes, you don't know what I am. So again, even though we might have been wrong or I might have been wrong about her being some sort of undercover government agent and, and uh, not truly being Dick Grayson's sister, uh, it very well may be, may be that she is undercover. Maybe she's on her own. Maybe she wants to take revenge for Blockbuster killing her father. Maybe she wants to uh, take revenge on on uh, the crime in Bloodhaven. 
for the trauma that her mother had to go through with, you know, maybe she went to Bloodhaven in the hopes of, of taking down Tony Zuko because of what Zuko did to her mother. And now that Blockbuster has taken out Zuko, she plans on taking out Blockbuster because that's the next best thing to take out Zuko. Like, I, I don't know. Clearly, there's much more to Melinda Zuko than, than meets the eye. I guess that's what I'm saying. So next issue, Nightwing versus Blockbuster, and we'll see how it all plays out. But a uh, great issue from, from Tom Taylor. Uh, all right, moving on. Next, we have Shazam, uh, issue number one from writer Tim Sheridan. Clayton Henry is the artist. Marcelo Maiello does the colors. Rob Lee does the letters. Uh, and this is a four-issue mini and it says right on the cover from the pages of Teen Titans Academy. So it very much ties into Teen Titans Academy. And it also ties in really closely to the Future State uh, Teen Titans uh, two-issue miniseries that we c- talked about a, a few months ago. So uh, what were your thoughts on this one, Rocky? Uh, wow. Um, <laughs> there was – I got to tell you, this uh, – you know, we, we reviewed the – if I recall, when we reviewed the Future State Shazam issues, we we had some serious issues with it. It was uh, we thought it was uh, poorly, poorly structured. Uh, it was a little bit. It was difficult to get a, a handle on. It required multiple reads, I think, from uh, from from both of us and 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 Trevor Dark Knight Nation when we reviewed it, and we we weren't particularly happy with it. If I recall correctly, this is much better. I'm I'm much happier with this. This is definitely. Uh, I'm actually really. I'm really interested in knowing this gives a lot of background, which boy, it sure would have been helpful to have known all this at the time of future state, because I got to tell you future state really, we, I did manage and you know, we we both managed to sort of put together what the story was in future state. And it wasn't, it wasn't that bad, but it was a struggle. It was far more of a struggle than it ought to have been to put that story together. Well, this is uh, this was really done. This first issue Shazam, uh, really sets forth that that Billy Batson has a number of problems uh, right away, and we 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 got hints of this already in in Teen Titans Academy. That uh, Shazam, uh, B- Billy Batson is having a hard time accessing the lightning. Uh, sometimes the lightning changes in the, him into Shazam. Sometimes it doesn't. His abilities and his powers when he is Shazam, he he'll 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 be able to fly, and then he can't fly. He'll have super strength, and he won't have his super strength. He's he's unable to share his power with other members of of uh, with with his friends. Uh, Freddy, for example, is uh, he can't share his Shazam power with Freddy. Uh, he can't share Shazam power with Mary uh, Marvel, who ends up showing up here and asking Billy to please come and see Freddy. Freddy is apparently uh, dying in the hospital from the neurological condition that he has. Which uh, just as an interesting note here, one one of the fascinating aspects of Freddy uh, is that. He when he becomes Captain Marvel Jr., uh, he he doesn't have the neurological condition. So it reminds me a little bit of Jane Foster Thor. When when Jane Foster she became Thor, she you know it undid all the 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 chemotherapy that that she had. That when she turned back to Jane Foster, she was closer to death. It would appear that there's a little bit of, pl- of that in play here, maybe with with Freddie's dying in the hospital and Billy. Billy clearly probably feels some level of guilt here because if, maybe if he had access to the Shazam power, if he could share that power, he could save Freddy. Uh, Mary Marvel implies in here that Mary, that Freddy might die. He might only have days or weeks left to live. And all of these pressures and anxieties are really coming into play on Billy Batson here. And I think it really works here. There are some, there are some really great emotional moments here that I want to give uh, uh, credit to artist Clayton Henry. 
that you can see the frustration that Billy is having. Uh, he, in his conversations with Nightwing, uh, he's, he's really expressing some discontent. He's, as he's, he's getting older and he's, you know, he said it's getting harder and har- harder. Sometimes when he's Shazam, you can't remember what it's like to be Billy Batson and vice versa. And Nightwing just sort of passes it off, telling him that's ah, just part of growing up. And meanwhile, you know, Billy Batson is trying to get a handle on, on things. He's having his own visions of, of, of the future of the rock of eternity. So, so, and Raven is also having those hallucinations. Again, this is all allusions to what we know of future state where, where we know that Raven will ultimately be taken over by possessed by the unkindness and Shazam will take Raven and, uh, sort of, sort of, you know, cap, you know, put her into the rock of eternity. But here there are so many things that are awry. So much information is crammed into this issue. Dr. Fate shows up and Billy Batson overhears, uh, a conversation with Dr. Fate and the, the Titans. So much is going on in, in the DC universe right now that it's, uh, it, it's really hard. But, you know, Dr. Fate mentions that uh, there's a massive celestial event which has taken place in, in the pages of Justice League Dark, which we've read about. The Speed Force barrier is in chaos, which, which culminated in the Flash Annual. The central power battery is destroyed in Green Lantern. And the Rock of Eternity has been displaced into Hell where Neuron is trying to get inside it. All this is happening, and we know all this from all the comic books, other DC comics, and what's going into Future State. And all this is jam-packed into this issue, and and there's so much emotion here. There's there, there's an emotion here. There's just one page that, for those listening on the podcast, it shows Billy Batson looking at his hands. Mary Marvel is behind him, and he's you, you can see he wants to cry. He's so emotional because he can't, access the power of Shazam and he feels he feels helpless and he feels he you know Starfire tells him at one point look you can be an idol and a mentor to some of these other students in in the academy but he doesn't feel that way Billy Batson feels uh, depressed he's filled with anxiety he feels helpless he can't help any of his friends and he can't access the po- the, the rock of eternity he, he can't communicate with the wizard Shazam and he's really concerned about that. And and ultimately, at the end, with the help of another student named Dane, he does manage to access and access hell, or the, the underrealm, as they call it, or hell, where we, we anticipate he'll end up confronting Neuron. And uh, ultimately, there'll be a separation of the Shazam and the Billy Batson uh, <laughs> uh, in, incarnations. So much is crammed in this first issue. It explains a lot, but I got to tell you, I'm really interested in this again, even though I kind of know how it's going to end. So artistically, I loved it. Uh, colors, coloring was great. Marcelo Mayolo on color, on color was great. Tim Sheridan as a writer. I mean, I got to, this is Tim Sheridan's. He's, he's, this is better. This is his, some of his better work. Um, I don't know, Jace. I know. I know. There's a lot crammed in here, but did you find it a little bit easier than uh, the future state issues to to get into this story? Yeah, I mean, we're talking about. I almost want to call it the Sheridan verse, right? Like we have the the Teen Titans. We had the the Teen Titans future state. We had the future state Shazam, uh, and we even saw the future state um, Teen Titans reference in the future state Flash. And then it's brought back here, right? And the Shazam, obviously, it ties in closely with Teen Titans Academy. It's right there on the cover. Uh, at least this doesn't have any red X. And, and that's not to say that 
Some of the Red X stuff hasn't intrigued me, but we've seen Red X then crossover with Suicide Squad already. Red X has been a big um, focus in the Teen Titans book. So at least, I mean, clearly Sheridan's got a big story to tell here, right? Like they're having to split it out to give us the Shazam story in its own book, which I appreciate. And, you know, some of that might have to do with the fact that uh, there's a, uh, a Black Adam movie coming later and uh, another Shazam movie coming later. I'm not so naive to think that that's not the case. Um, but I, I do like that we are getting more like, like it, it's very connected and it feels very connected. You know, that scene with Dr. Fate in, in the room going, okay, here's what's been going on. The, you know, the central power battery. Hey, that's a mention to what's going on over in Green Lantern. Uh, the speed force barrier being broken again, like Rocky mentioned, that's a callback to the flash annual. So I do like that these things seem connected. And if you are reading everything in the DC universe, it, it feels much more connected than, say, Marvel or even DC itself, you know, prior to death metal, let's say. So I do I do like those things. Um, but, yeah, I agree, I agree with Rocky. We're going to sound like a broken record here. Um, some of this stuff would have been helpful and would have made the future state stories less convoluted. And then conversely, like we've said many times, was it really necessary to give us those flash forwards in future state? Wouldn't it have been better and more intriguing you know, when we're reading this current stuff to not to know that at some point Shazam and, and Billy Batson are going to be separated into two unique and distinct entities, right? Like, so obviously this is heralding what we saw in future state Shazam with, um, you know, Shazam being controlled by Neuron and whatnot. So uh, I, I do like this, but again, I have to point to future state and, and, at this point, I just got to call it a mistake. <laughs> what a mistake Future State was. Just give us these stories and I would have been more intrigued. Now it's almost like I'm going to be reading this Shazam book in the hopes to see how it pivots to keep the events from Future State Shazam from happening because that's ultimately what we want. Um, but in terms of this story standing on its own, I agree with Rocky. The the poignancy of the emotions with Mary showing up to, to confront Billy. Hey, Billy, how come you haven't been in touch with us? And, and it's because Billy's felt guilty. The power of Shazam is so unstable, he can't even share it. And then Billy finding out that Freddy's in the hospital because, as Rocky mentioned, without that uh, regular influx of, of Shazam magic to transform Freddy into Captain Marvel Jr., his, yeah, his neurological disorder has has left him debilitated to the point where he may only have weeks or days to live that's a Billy, uh, that's Billy's best friend and regardless of whether he's an adult as Captain Marvel he's still just a teenager he's still uh, dealing with the you know the normal teenage stuff fitting in trying to decide what he wants to do with his life uh, the added pressures of, and responsibilities of, of having superpowers uh, he's trying to juggle all that. He's trying to, to deal with the fact that his powers are unstable. So he, when he finds out his best friend is uh, on death's door, it's no surprise that he doesn't exactly make the, the best choices um, and chooses to kind of go against the, what he knows the Titans want, which is him to keep stay there, keep his head down, keep on the straight and narrow. No, instead he wants to go do whatever he can. It, 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 it's true characterization for Billy Bats. We know he has a huge heart. We know he wants to help. Um, I am intrigued by this Dane character who we've seen in the pages of, of Teen Titans, but he's still very much a mystery. Um, at this point, kind of all we know is he's, he's Raven's star pupil, and Raven's power does tend to be, 
you know, more on the dark side of magic. So, you know, he agrees to help Billy, but he even tells Billy, because Billy's like, no, I don't, wouldn't want to put anybody else in danger. I've got to do this on my own. And Dane's like, hold on a second. Don't think that I'm doing this just out of the goodness of my heart. I'm after something too. There's a reason I need to go to the under realm as well. So what that is, we, we don't know. But uh, I will say that, and, and when we look back, especially more so on the, the Teen Titans Future State series than the Shazam Future State series, because I did feel that that was better paced by Tim Sheridan as opposed to the Teen Titans Future State, which we, we kind of raked over the coals for having so many ideas crammed into it and being paced so poorly that you couldn't make heads or tails of it. But, you know, having read this issue, like I said before, it very much feels like Tim Sheridan is giving us a Sheridan verse, right, that contains the Teen Titans, that contains Shazam. Clearly, he's got this big story to tell. So uh, I don't know that the Sheridan verse, as it were, could uh, – I don't know how many titles it could actually sustain and make it worthwhile for DC. But I'm glad that this Billy Batson story is getting its own uh, its own title so it has the real estate to – give us as much of the story in detail as we need instead of trying to jam pack it into the pages of, of Teen Titans. I, I would almost say that, you know, with all these anthologies, you know, not that I want another seven or $8 book, but you know, uh, if, if Sheridan is going to be telling these stories and, and they're so closely tied in, you know, why not do something like the Batman urban legends title and combine, uh, combine them all into one, you know, yeah. call it whatever you want. Teen Titans. You could just keep calling it Teen Titans Academy and just have it be an anthology. Well, let's get the Teen Titans Academy story. Let's get a Red X story. Let's get a Shazam story, you know, every month. And so if you were doing that, if you're dedicating one story to Red X, you wouldn't be pulling the focus away from the students of Teen Titans Academy, which when there have been issues that have focused on the students, Rocky and I have really enjoyed them. Um, and if, if Shazam is going to tie in so closely that might've been the better way to go. Um, but that might be, you know, hindsight is 2020 20 at this point, but, but overall I, I enjoyed it. Um, Clayton Henry's art, uh, a little less stylized here than I'm used to seeing. And the backgrounds are a little lighter than I'm used to seeing. Um, so I don't know if that was just a, a case of the fact that despite this being a Shazam book, there are a lot of characters here. Um, it takes place in, in, uh, you know, Titan's tower and there's tons of other students. I have a feeling that might've been what led to, um, a little less detail from, from Clayton, but overall the art is, is very, very good. And the colors by, by Marcelo Maiello are also very, very good. So artistically, I don't, I don't have any complaints story-wise. I really don't have any complaints either. I thought this was really, really good. I was, I was surprised, um, only because of the, the Tim Sheridan future state stuff where I, you know, Again, the Teen Titans stuff, we really didn't enjoy. Shazam was slightly better, but he has impressed me with his work on on the Teen Titans Academy series, and I'm certainly impressed with this as well. Very, very entertaining. Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, all right, up next, we have another number one, uh, and it's another limited series. It's eight issues long. It's Blue and Gold, starring Booster Gold and Blue Beetle. It's by the creator of Booster Gold, Dan Jurgens. He does uh, the writing. We have art by Ryan Sook, letters are by Rob Lee. And when I say art by Ryan Sook, he does both the line work and the colors. And Ryan Sook is an incredible artist. Most people will know him as the uh, a cover artist. He doesn't do interiors a whole heck of a lot of times. Um, and I remember he did the uh, all the covers for the Future End, Future's End Weekly 
series, um, which was, I mean, those covers were, were fantastic. So seeing him do interiors uh, was great. I mean, his art is, is absolutely fantastic. I think most recently he did some uh, both interior and cover work for Bendis's Legion of Superheroes. Um, so I, I thought it was great. In terms of the story itself, anytime you get Dan Jurgens writing Booster Gold, um, I'm in. Uh, and I know that Booster is one of Dan's favorite characters to write. I've talked to Dan about it before. There was a good a good chunk of time, maybe the first 15 or 20 years that Booster Gold existed. Nobody wrote him but Dan Jurgens, And it wasn't like Dan said, nobody can write him, just me. It just worked out that way. Um, and then finally, some other people um, wrote some Booster stories. I think Jeff Johns did. Obviously, uh, Booster was a big part of uh, Heroes, and, uh, Heroes in Crisis, so Tom King. Uh but to me, nobody gets Booster's voice, right? And, and I, I'm not necessarily talking about characterization. I'm talking about the cadence of his speech. I'm talking about the, his vocabulary, um, just the way he comes across with always that self-promoting kind of personality that he has where he's always looking for an angle. Nobody nails that the way Dan Jurgens does. And uh, I know Dan thinks of Booster as a, a favorite son and, and loves to write him. So the joy of that, how much... Dan Jurgens enjoys writing Booster. I always appreciate. Uh, and then, is there a better bromance in comics than than Booster and Beetle? You know, <laughs> Michael Carter and Ted Cord. Uh, I mean, these guys are just just the best. And whether you liked Heroes in Crisis or not, I don't think an argument can be made that Tom T King didn't nail at least that aspect of the characters. Uh, it was fantastic from them sitting in a rundown apartment eating pizza to uh, Blue Beetle breaking a Booster Gold out of the, the Justice League cell that he was in. I mean, it was it was fantastic. And you get that same feeling here. Um, these guys truly care about each other. They have a great relationship. There's plenty of humor here. Um, and, and the underlying story with this alien uh, civilization, I guess, who considers earth to be part of their territory. Uh, at one point, I guess it's the ruler of this, this alien race says to his daughter, earth might be on the distant fringes of our territory, but it's still ours. Uh, and his daughter, I think it's his daughter replies, give me the word. I'll kill the insufferable pests who did this. They are our subjects obligated to serve or perish. And what they're referring to is apparently they sent uh, this, this alien race sent uh, like a scout ship to earth to capture the justice league. So they could, I I'm again, I'm reading between the lines here. They could prevent the justice league from stopping their invasion when they go to put the boot hill on earth, because again, it's their territory. Earth needs to serve them and whatnot. And, you know, meanwhile at on earth, everybody's oblivious to this, right? Uh, wait, I mean, it's not much different not to get too political than us or, or I say us, uh, you know, the Europeans coming over to the, to North America planting their flag and saying, this is our land. But what about the indigenous Native Americans that were already there, right? Like, no, they get uh, they get harassed and moved off their land and killed or whatnot. Kind of the same thing here, right? Like, as, as Earthlings, you're, you're oblivious to the fact that these, this being, these beings, this race of aliens is saying, no, Earth, Earth is our territory. So despite their sometimes bumbling efforts, Booster Gold and Blue Beetle were successful in rescuing the Justice League. And so that's what they're referring to, this alien species is referring to at the end. How how dare these insufferable pests do this? You know, how dare they 
rescue the the Justice League. And so Fear and Loathing in New York is next. And uh, and I don't know. I, I thought it was fantastic. The art, I mean, again, it's Ryan Sook. Uh, to me, he's a top five artist, whether he's doing interiors or, uh, or just covers. And uh, like I mentioned, he did the colors as well. And the colors in this book are very bright, which despite the fact that at sometimes it gets a little serious for a booster and blue beetle book, which I, I, is fine. The colors remain bright throughout, which really gives it that, that lighthearted feel that a, a blue beetle and booster gold comic should have. So I, I, I absolutely love this. I thought it was fantastic. So uh, what were your thoughts, Rocky? Well, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to give a shout out to letterer Rob Lay because wow, you know what? Uh, if you want to get a different experience of this adventure and this opening issue, just read the social commentary because the 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 social media. I mean, Booster Gold is literally live streaming the rescue of the Justice League because he wants people to contribute to his "Please Pay Me" account. Yeah, <laughs> and he wants to make money off this. And of course, you get VIP status if you if you subscribe to uh, Booster Gold's uh, web web page and uh, you, you you contribute to his "Please Pay Me" account. And and and. Where, where where letterer Rob Lee really shows shows himself off is, you can see uh, the the great dialogue that Dan Jurgens has. It's it's scripted so well. You can see the social media commentary throughout the issue, and some of it is really funny. In fact, some of the funniest moments uh, take place in with the the people, the citizens of the world, you know, who are watching this live through their iPhones or what have you. And uh, they're, they're making commentary on it. And it's actually quite funny. And sometimes they're even explaining what's going on behind the scenes. And my favorite comment from a, from my, my favorite online commentator, uh, at one point Skeets was flying away. And for some reason, I just laughed out loud when they said, look, the toaster is running away. I mean, just referring <laughs> to Skeets as a toaster, flying toaster, I thought was kind of funny, but it's those types of things that I really appreciated that Dan Churgens put that extra bit of of uh, of of effort into because literally, uh, you know, there, so, sometimes I, I know my my wife always says that she doesn't know how to read a comic book and I, I always sort of chuckle at that and and you know and I always say of course she knows how to read but you know some people don't have the patience to read a comic book you know and uh, she's one of them and but uh, this is one thing where you can literally you get a different perspective on the adventure. If you, if you just read the uh, online <laughs> the online commentary as you go through the panels versus hearing what uh, Booster and uh, uh, Blue Beetle are talking about. I also, a couple of things uh, bugged me here, and I'm just going to go on a rant to defend Booster Gold. I like Booster Gold. I think he's pretty cool. I don't, I don't, I don't think that Justice League should have just accepted Blue Beetle. This, the, the, in, the opening issue, this issue was called Application Denied because Booster and Blue Beetle uh, they, they, you know, Booster wants wants to be accepted into the Justice League, and at the end, when they've won the day, they freed the Justice League. I love the commentary between uh, Booster and Blue Beetle. Uh, Booster says to Blue Beetle, "Oh, yeah, we're definitely they're definitely going to ask us for membership because look at them, they got a bunch of B and C listers on the team, <laughs> and you know, you know, he's got to be referring to Naomi, who shouldn't be on the Justice League to begin with." You know, not again, I'm not going to go on a Bendis rant, but I mean, Naomi, what the hell is she doing on the Justice League? And I'm sure Booster's thinking that. And of course, uh, uh, you know, bros before Rose, which I really like, brothers before (laughs) heroes. I mean, bros before Rose. Great expression. I love that. I mean, I don't think that's that's probably not original, but uh, if I I think that's the first time I've heard it anyway. But anyways, I 
Uh, I really liked it. I love the fact that Dan Jurgens knows that that Black Canary made the comment that, you know, he isn't that bad, Oliver. Black Canary defends Booster Gold, which is exactly what I would expect Black Canary to do. It Because she because she knows from the Justice League days of Keith Giffen and, and Kevin Maguire back in those days that Booster Gold is not as incompetent as one might think. And quite frankly, uh, Batman himself thinks knows that Booster is far more competent than he thinks as well. I'm surprised that Batman would have voted against Booster. Uh, I mean, uh, but in any event, no, I don't want Booster and Blue Beetle on the Justice League team. I want them to be the the, the Abbott and Costello of superheroes uh, because they because they're just awesome. I love it. Uh, it's by the way, it's Princess Omnison is the leader of that alien race that tried to invade and take over and try to incapacitate the Justice League. Princess Omnison and uh, that invasion, and you know they're going to be coming back to get their revenge on, Boos- on Booster and. Um, uh, Blue Beetle, and yeah, this is just a lot of fun. A lot of fun. Thank God Dan's Jurgens, Dan Jurgens is back. This is what we need. I quite enjoyed this. And uh, man, you want to talk about the whole creative team firing on all cylinders, man? Dan Jurgens, Ryan Sook on art, Rob Lee and letterers. This really came together to be a nice total package. I, I really enjoyed this. Yeah, um, one thing that I really liked. You mentioned the social media comments, which I thought was was great. So clearly one of them is um, Bibbo because uh, he says Superman the way, uh, you know, he always says it where it's S-O-O-P-E-R. Oh, yeah. uh, and he calls, he calls, um, he calls Booster Gold his second favorite. Uh, and so th- that was great to see Bibbo commenting. And my favorite comment from Bibbo is once Blue Beetle and Beaster- Booster Gold get inside the alien ship and they're going to rescue the Justice League, Bibbo said, that's the Justice League? <laughs> like, where's Green Lantern? Where's Flash? Where's Superman? You know, why is Naomi there? Like, yeah. So kind of echoing our our sort of sentiment of of uh, of Bendis' Justice League. Not that I put the blame on Bendis. He probably didn't have a choice in everybody that was yeah. that was there. Obviously, no, we know Wonder Woman is off in the realm of the gods and Superman's about to leave Earth and whatnot. So mm-hmm. uh but I, yeah, I guarantee Naomi was his choice to put on the team. But yeah, I just love Bibbo kind of say, saying what we all were thinking. That's the Justice League? Exactly. <laughs> like, you know, I feel compelled to say one other thing too, that, uh, you know, I, I spent so much time laughing and enjoying this issue that I, 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 I would be lax if I didn't mention some of the more emotional high points where, when Blue Beetle is at the graveside of his father and he and he expresses regrets about his role in the Suicide Squad issue uh, yeah, nine yeah. issue series or 10 issue series by tom taylor uh, that resulted yep. in the death of deadshot uh and he, he mentions that he so he has some regrets so dan jurgens one good thing about dan jurgens is because he comes from that triangle area of superman and he wrote booster gold for so long he's someone who you can bet that dan jurgens more so than most writers he's he's cognizant of what's going on in the, in the dc universe and you're at least going to get some uh, i think allusions to that as this series goes forward uh, i would imagine yep i agree uh, all right, let's move on to Superman Red and Blue number five. I think this is the last of this uh, anthology. And again, it's it's one of those limited color palette series. Uh, in this particular issue, we have uh, five different stories. Fetch, written by Jed Winnick, art by Abraham Mustafa, lettered by Wes Bennett. De-Escalation, written by G. Willow Wilson, with art by Valentin D'Alandro, lettered by Wes Abbott. Your favorite, written by Joshua Williamson, penciled by Chris Sprouse, <laughs> inks by Carl Story, colored by Hi-Fi, lettered by Josh Reed. Red Sun, Blue Dot, written and illustrated by Mark Buckingham, colors by Lee Luffridge, and lettered by 
Pat Brousseau, and then Generations, written, illustrated, and lettered by Daniel Warren Johnson. So uh, we start off with this Judd Winnick story that I, I think is fantastic. It's, it's basically when crypto lands on Earth, which I don't know that I've ever read a story of crypto coming to Earth. Uh, I think, if I remember correctly, he just kind of showed up in the pages of Action Comics one day. Uh, but who doesn't love crypto, right? So I thought this was a fantastic story, very heartfelt from Judd Winnick. He gets it. Um, and this made me miss Judd Winnick writing comics very much. Uh, the art by Ibrahim Mustafa I thought was fantastic. Uh, the colors, uh, this isn't one of those where the the limited palette, I think, affected the story at all. I think it worked very, very effectively. And yeah, this was just very, very well done. Just wonderfully paced. Even though it was a shorter story, you felt like it had enough room to breathe. You got plenty of character moments. Judd Winnick clearly is a Superman fan and a crypto fan, just like uh, I think we all should be. Um, and I can sum it up, you know, with the last line that of the story that Judd Winnick wrote. Every kid needs a dog, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's great. I, I just love this. Um, yeah, I thought it was awesome. What'd you think, Rocky? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. Honestly, I, I think you'd have to be lacking a heart not to like this. This is this is just great. I mean, you know, man's best friend, you know, and Superman, young Superboy, young John Kent had crypto. And, and it's a nice origin to crypto. I do recall reading back in the day a Silver Age origin of crypto. And it, but it wasn't as heartfelt as this. Uh, this is, uh, but this this is great. This is great, and and I mean appropriately named fetch. This is exactly the type of stories you expect in these Superman anthologies. Just you know, feel good stories. You know, eight to ten pages, just very well done. Great art again by Abraham Mustafa. Uh, yeah, just impressive. Yeah, very nice. Good, good feel good story. Yeah, and the colors yep. were really good. Yeah, the de-escalation on the next one. G. Willow Wilson is the writer, Valentin Delandro. I didn't, and we've talked about Valentin Delandro. I, I, I feel bad. It's not that I think the guy doesn't have talent, but I think a lot of times his his artwork isn't evoking the feel that I think the stories need. Um, he does have very heavy line work, and and it's not even the line work necessarily in this particular story that I think doesn't work, but even though he's using just red and blue and white, the colors I think are a little too dark to sort of convey the the hopefulness of, of the story. It is a serious story. Uh, it's a Clark Kent story, not a Superman story. And Clark Kent is in his neighborhood grocery store, uh, bodega, what have you, when uh, this, this young boy comes in and tries to rob it. And, you know, that de-escalation title refers to the fact that without using any superpowers, just with using... Uh, just by talking to this boy, uh, this young man, and by showing that he cares and, and really showing who Superman is, whether he's in the costume or not, showing who Clark Kent is, whether he's in the costume or not, how much he cares about people, Clark Kent's able to de-escalate the situation. So I thought this, in terms of story, I thought it was very, very good. But I just think that the color palette didn't quite work for me. I, I think it needed to be – and I'm not saying this should be a bright – Color, you know, brightly colored the way the, the first story is, but I think it needed to be more bright than this because it, it, it makes it feel almost like a cynical story. Like, Oh, you know, Clark Kent did save the day this time by talking this guy down, but the next problem is just right around the corner. And I don't think that's G Willow. And maybe I'm wrong, but I don't feel like that's G Willow Wilson's intent, but 
I thought this was very, very well written um, because it shows that whether he's in the costume or not, Clark Kent is Superman. Superman is Clark Kent. So I, I really enjoyed this. I, and not that I think G. Willow Wilson's not a very talented writer. I think she's a, an excellent writer, but I've, she's not somebody I ever was like, oh man, I'd really like to see what G. Willow Wilson would do with a Superman story. But after reading this, I'm, I'm feeling that way. I thought it was fantastic. So what did you think, Rocky? Yeah, I agree. And, uh, uh, yeah. And let's just, Hey man, I, maybe it's because Richard, uh, Donner recently, uh, just passed away in the last month, but boy, this is, I mean, obviously this is uh, Christopher Reeve all the way. I mean, oh, yeah. artist, uh, straight up a tribute to Valentin Delandro. The artist did a fantastic job. I, in fact, to be honest, I almost wish that we got a scene like this in the original Superman movie with young bumbling Clark Kent wasn't so bumbling in this. He actually showed up uh, sort of in a sort of a very cautiously yet uh, nerdy confidence in how he approached the boy. Really impressed the hell out of the, the, the store clerk who saw that he was, you know, risking himself. Uh, of course, she doesn't know he's Superman, but at the end gives him a Superman doll and you know, Clark Kent just being Clark Kent. And, and in this way, when, when he's getting this young boy to de-escalating the situation with this young boy, this young boy was not intimidated by Clark Kent, but that's exactly why Clark Kent, the meek and mild side of, of Superman could speak to the boy because the boy could, he could speak to that boy's level. Cause that boy had the same type of perhaps lack of, uh, self-esteem that maybe he perceived Clark Kent having and that allowed him to de-escalate the situation. There's a lot going on behind the scenes here, quite frankly, between all the characters involved. The young boy would be robber and Clark Kent and, and the girl who's studying for a, a math test or with quadratic equations behind the, behind the, the desk uh, at the till. Very well done by Jay Willow Wilson. Uh, yeah. Again, just another, you know, Again, another reason I, I can't believe I'm saying this because I'm not really a fan of anthologies. But yeah, this is another real good, feel-good story. And especially if you're fans of Christopher Reeve, man, pick this up. Yep, definitely. Uh, next up is a um, a Jimmy Olsen slash Superman story from Joshua Williamson, pencils by Chris Sprouse, uh, called Your Favorite. And basically a reporter is asking Jimmy what his favorite uh, shot of, of Superman, his favorite photograph. Uh, what did you think of this one, Rocky? This one wasn't wasn't my favorite, but you know, again, it's, it's there's nothing there's like nothing against any of these uh, this story. Um, um, the the art was fine. Uh, the the colors are really good. I mean, uh, high fi on the colors. The colors here really popped off the page. Basically, I mean, Lois is asking Jimmy, "What's your favorite photograph?" And Jimmy can't make up his mind because there are so many amazing photographs he has of Superman, and. It's just him sort of remembering all these times that he took pictures of Superman, how amazing Superman is, and all these snapshots of, of Jimmy Olsen of constantly trying to keep up and take pictures of Superman and the action and, and everything else. And, uh, um, and then ultimately, the, the favorite photo, it's really about what is Lois's favorite picture, and that is seeing Superman. It's a picture of Superman with Jimmy Olsen. Uh, there, you know, Superman with his best friend. That's what warms Lois's heart. And I don't know in this particular story if Lois already knows Clark is Superman, or but I guess that's really not important. It's just, it's this is really about exemplifying that 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 Superman has a best friend, and and that's Jimmy Olsen, and and it's it's true between best friends. You you don't have 
your favorite moments with a best friend because there are so many of them. And, and that's really the message here that Jimmy Olsen has a lot of great moments with Superman that, of course, he can't pick one. It's their best friends. And so in that respect, Joshua Williamson did a good job conveying that. At least that was the message I got out of it. Uh, what did uh, How did you feel about it? Yeah, I, I agree with you. And Josh even managed to throw in something there that shows that you know, sometimes Jimmy is his own worst enemy because he thinks back to the time he could have gotten what he called the perfect shot, the greatest shot of all time of Superman, where yeah. Superman had had rescued some kids from a building that was collapsing and then took the time to kneel down and, and talk to those kids. And Jimmy snaps the picture but left the lens cap on, um, <laughs> which is a totally Jimmy Olsen thing to do. So, yeah, I agree with, with, with what you're saying. For Jimmy, it's not even about what, what pictures exist out there in the world, what pictures he's taken. It's about what he, he remembers and the feeling that he has of being Superman's best friend. So yeah, really good story. Uh, next up is red sun story and art by Mark Buckingham, uh, great colors by Lee Luffridge. The other thing I liked that Buckingham did was there's uh, a border on the top and bottom of the page with Superman flying from, from left to right, which I kind of enjoyed. Um, yeah. But this, uh, a lot of the, the majority of the story is are these two page spreads that um, that tells a big epic story? Except for the first page and the last page, it very much reminded me of Jim Steranko's classic Superman story in Superman four hundred, uh, which is all told with double page spreads. But uh, I thought this was fantastic. What'd you think, Rock? Yeah, uh, I did. Uh, unfortunately, the way I have this uh, structured for those watching on YouTube, I can only show one page at a time between uh, Jason and I. But uh, so you can't get a full appreciation of the two-page spread. But I look, I'm looking forward to picking up this uh, this com you know, this comic, and because this is one I haven't got bought in all the anthologies. This is one that I will be picking up because I, I like I like all the stories, and this is one of them. Two-page spread, fantastic. Um, and, you know, just coming down to uh, just following the rocket ship to Earth, the big blue dot, which is Earth. And again, you know, I, I never even it's funny when I think of Superman red and blue, I don't think of Earth, which is, of course, a big blue dot. And uh, and, and you pointed out the Superman, you know, surrounding each page with Superman flying on, on the top and the bottom, the red and the blue. It's good. It's just it's, it's just. Yeah. Again, it's a, it's another feel good story. And um uh, uh, yeah, just Superman flying to a home. I mean, I flying to his new home Earth. So, yeah, I guess. Yeah, I thought, Go ahead. <laughs> very, very well balanced is what I would say. Red sun, blue dot, right? It, I yeah. mean, it's the whole idea that he's coming from. Superman as a baby is traveling from a red sun to a blue dot. And and as we're following this journey, Jor-El and, and Laura are, are talking, right? And they're talking about the hopes for their son as their red sun uh fades and their planet dies uh the hopes for their son for the future so in a way i think it's kind of spiritually um it just sort of reminded me not not that i'm a fan as listeners of my podcast will know i'm not not a fan of the the man of steel movie from Zack snyder but that that monologue that uh jor-el did um russell crowe did about um you know you you will inspire them you know, you're going to be so powerful on earth and they'll look to you as a protector. I, I, that feeling, you know, is the same feeling I got when I, when I read this very, very inspiring. Um, so yeah. And, and great art by, by Mark Buckingham as well. So I, I thought it was, I thought it was pretty solid. And, and speaking of man of steel, when we get to the last story, which is by Daniel Warren Johnson, 
which has everything to do with with Pa Kent and being a father. Um, pa Kent basically goes to he goes to church. You know, he he. It hasn't been so long since the rocket ship has has crashed, and he goes to talk to this priest. You know, he admits that it's been a while since he's been to church. He's been so busy, uh, you know, trying to raise this child, and he's he's expressing doubts. Like, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know about the world. I'm just an old farmer in a small town. What do I have to give to this child? Um, and the priest tells him that, you know, you have a good heart. You have a good heart, Jonathan. And, and you do just like, you know, the father did when the savior was baptized. You, you say that you love him and you say he makes you proud and, you know, make sure your boy knows how you feel and, and the rest will sort of fall into place. And, then we see Jonathan through the years, like taking that literally to heart. Um, and he, he, he picks up a baby Clark sleeping in his crib and he, he says, you're special. And then as Clark learns to walk, I love you. And as Clark is helping him plant uh, crops on the farm, I'm proud of you. And then we just see scenes throughout where that mantra is repeated. Uh, you're special. I love you. Uh, I'm proud of you. Just teaching Clark those fundamentals that no matter what, right or wrong, mistake or not mistake, whatever, that he's proud. And and we see at the end of the story that Clark took those lessons to heart, right? Like he's telling the people of Earth um, that they're special, that he loves them, that he's proud of them. Yeah. Um, and, and to the point where he flies, the, the final scene, he flies into space and looks on Earth and, and talks about how he's, he loves Earth and he's proud of everybody there. And, and all I could think, uh, going back to the Man of Steel, is – for the love of God, could somebody have read Zack Snyder this story and David Goyer this story? Like, you read this story. This is who Jonathan Kent is. This is who Superman is. This is the childhood that he had. <laughs> this child would not grow up to snap Zod's neck. It just wouldn't happen. <laughs> this exactly is right. who Superman is. Um, and they so clearly missed the, the boat on that. And, you know, we're not going to get into it, to it any more than that here. But, I mean, when you read this, you, you're like, yeah, th this is correct. This is the correct characterization for Pa Kent. This is the correct characterization for Superman. Not whatever they had Kevin Costner do in the movie where he was te teaching Clark to fear being found out. Um, and it's all about fathers and sons. And even at the end of the story, Daniel Warren Johnson, he says, dedicated to Stephen Johnson, I love you, Dad. Yeah. So I, I thought it was powerful. I thought it was fantastic. Um I'm not the biggest fan of Daniel Warren Johnson's artwork, um, but here I didn't mind it. The story was so good. Um, and that's just, that's a personal thing. Uh, I think uh, Daniel Warren Johnson's art's a little kind of gritty and visceral for me for superhero work, but it, it worked here. That, that's how powerful the story was. So yeah. this was probably, and it's hard to pick a favorite because for me, this is my favorite issue of Superman Red and Blue by far. There isn't a bad story in this one. There have been other ones where they've had some good stories, but they've had some that were just okay. Some of them have had stories that I wouldn't con consider even okay. They've had some stories that were below average. But in my mind, every one of these stories is above average to absolutely spectacular. Yes. Um, and, and and this last story is, is probably my favorite, but uh, but the Clark Kent story is great and the crypto story is great. I mean, they're, yeah, from start to finish, far and away my favorite issue of, of Superman red and blue and, and a lot of it to do with the strength of this last story. Yeah. Uh, what did you think of this last one, Rocky? 
uh, I love that this was really great. And this is uh, one where uh, uh, you'll note here that in most of these anthologies with Superman red and blue, the super the, the colors red and blue are usually painted upon the character of Superman. But what I love about this story, and it it was clearly intentional, is that the heroes of this story are Jonathan and Martha Kent because they're mm. the only ones colored in red signifying that they're the heroes because they love, they love their son. Jonathan in particular passes on, says, I love you, son. You're special. Good job. And it's Jonathan with his red shirt throughout the story. And it's Martha with her red shirt throughout the story. And then after they're gone, Superman, when it shows Clark Kent in front of their grave, he rips open his chest and he has a red S. So that love, that, that the color red is symbolizing the passage of love, the passing of love to the next generation. Love your children. Love it conquers all. And, you know, make your children feel special. It's about legacy. It's about moving forward. And the color red symbolizes that. And that color red. And then near the end, of course, you got Superman in both red and blue looking down upon the earth saying, I love you to that big blue dot, which we just saw in the previous story. There's a synchronicity here that is absolutely beautiful. And I want to give a shout out, of course, to a Daniel Warren Johnson. This is a guy that did, uh, I do like his art. I think it's a it's an acquired taste, but I like it. He did Wonder Woman Dead Earth, and he's currently the writer and artist on, uh, or the artist on Beta Ray Bill at Marvel. And that's uh, receiving a lot of critical acclaim right now as well. But excellent. Uh, very, very well done. Fantastic uh, anthology so far. No question. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised to see... Uh... To see this last story get some nominations for best short story would not surprise me at all. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, all right, moving on next, we have Catwoman number 33 from writer Ron V. Uh, Fernando Blanco is the artist, Jordi Belair on colors, Tom Napolitano on uh, letters. Um, I don't actually have a whole lot to say about this one. It, it feels very much like a transitional issue. Um, we do finally get the fight between Father Valley and, and Catwoman. Uh, and in, based on that Catwoman annual and or, getting the origin of Father Valley, I do find him somewhat more of an interesting character. But I think, I mean, I haven't come so far as to say I'd be a fan of him. And I think what I particularly don't care, I just don't care for his, his character design. The trench coat and the, the funky hat, the glasses that uh, oftentimes are opaque. Um, I, I'm just, so you can't see his eyes. I'm just not a fan of the character design. I think that's what leaves me cold. Um it's certainly a well-scripted and well-paced issue. Like I come to expect that from from Ram V, very a very technical, uh, technically good and and well put together comic. Um, but yeah, it feels like this is a stepping stone to to something more. Um, and if anything takes it out of feeling like completely a transitional uh, issue, is that we do finally get that that fight between Catwoman and Father Valley, like I mentioned. But it doesn't feel like it's the final fight, right? Um, Catwoman doesn't, doesn't fare that well. Um, and honestly, it's probably because she's distracted and stressed out, which is sort of covered in the, the first part of the issue. And you would expect the rematch to go much, much differently. But, uh, the art Fernando Blanco, he's done an incredible job on Catwoman this whole entire time. So, uh, he, he does the same again here. We do finally find out the identity of the, the trench coat wearing, uh, fedora wearing mysterious character who's been helping Catwoman out. And I, I'll let Rocky spill the beans on that one. Uh, but it, I liked who it was. Uh, I'll say that. 
And overall, this is still a very, very good series. Uh, maybe not my favorite issue, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm on board. I think next issue uh, will probably be action-packed because it seems like Rom V is, is he'll, he follows up one of these sort of slower issues or, or when there's not a ton of action with often an issue where it's action from cover to cover. So I guess we'll have to wait and see. But uh, what were your thoughts, Rocky? I really like this issue. Uh, things are really starting to come together here. And, uh, you know, in in the last issue, issue 32 of Catwoman, uh, Father Valley had uh, had stabbed uh, one of the other stray cats, uh, Leo, and left him for dead in an alley. We then got the Catwoman annual that gave us a little bit of background of Father Valley. And he sort of related all, uh, to the whole, uh, you know, to the the St. Dumas chapter. And he's, he's got a, he's got an interesting sort of origin, uh, father Valley. And he, he's an assassin. He was high. Father Valley was an assassin hired by the penguin to assassinate, uh, to basically kill Catwoman and detective Hadley, uh, formerly of Villa Hermosa, uh, who was, who was, was assigned to, uh, Gotham PD. He's, he's discovered that Car Carvalli is an assassin and he goes out to try to warn Catwoman. Meanwhile, Cat, uh, Catwoman, Selena discovers that uh, her mysterious benefactor is actually, uh, uh, Clayface. And, uh, that's, that's not too much of a surprise. I think, I think you even guessed that, uh, if I remember correctly, Jace or other people have guessed it. What I find really interesting here is that I love the fact that, uh, you know, the magistrate is, Forces are at play to to uh, to blame to blame the strays to blame the people of Alleytown uh, for for some of the violence that's occurring, and Mayor Nagano is of course uh, letting authorizing magistrate forces to go into Alleytown and to round up all the strays, and so they've got to leave their nest. And the series of underground tunnels that Selena has set up, uh, they're really starting to take advantage of. And what Clayface has here is Clayface shows Selena that they actually have allies. And this is very interesting. Selena's new allies are, number one, there is the Riddler. Riddler is helping to set up an electrical grid uh, on the underground tunnel. So the Ed Edward Nigma, the Riddler, is actually an ally of Catwoman. We got the Croc. We got Knockout. We got Firefly. And we got Cheshire. And, of course, Cheshire here is the mother of Cheshire Cat. And, uh, and Cheshire Cat is actually Leon. Remember, Roy Harper and Cheshire had a child, Leon. Now, Leon was killed in the pre-Death Metal universe. We know Leon is alive. She's now Cheshire Cat, sort of essentially the sidekick to Catwoman. So I got to wonder, one of the questions I have, even outside this narrative, Cheshire now, she's an international assass assassin. Why would she be in Gotham wanting to work with Catwoman, of all people? I wonder if Cheshire was the one... Does Cheshire know that her daughter Leon is still alive? Was it Cheshire that dropped off Leon in that orphanage in 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 Alleytown? Uh, I mean, I got these questions. I'm really curious about this. We last saw Cheshire in the pages of uh, the you know, in during the the Joker War uh, in the pa of of Batman. Anyways, it's a lot of things are happening here. Uh, you already mentioned it. It ends with uh, they end up going down to the docks because they want to they they want to smuggle in high-tech they want to smuggle in high-tech computer equipment from the docks and so that's where clayface and the killer croc go to to pick it up but that's when it's all a setup uh, by father valley and he ut utilizes it to attack catwoman stabs her a number of times really gets uh, one up on her 
she ends up being thrown into the river where it looks like uh, Batman is uh, going to be uh, trying to rescue Catwoman. And Clayface, unfortunately, gets blown up by Father Valley. He shoves a grenade in Clayface. Clayface probably isn't dead because I'm, I'm sure that's not the first time Clayface has had <laughs> has exploded into mud globules all over the place. But in any event, uh, lots, a lot of moving parts here. But I, I think this is fun. I think it's, it's, it's action-packed. Uh, Ram V's done a really good job. I love it. Uh, Fernando Blanco on the art's been great. Uh, Jordi Belair on the colors. I mean, this final page with Catwoman bleeding out uh, under underwater as Batman reaches for her. Uh, the next issue teases a, re a return to rooftops. And rooftops is an allusion, I believe, to that famous Tom King story. <laughs> Depending on how you feel about Tom King's Batman, there was a particularly, I, I think, relatively acclaimed issue of Tom King. One of his better if issues was Rooftops, uh, which dealt with uh, personal uh, interactions between Catwoman and Batman. And of course, it's, it's going to be a return to Rooftops. Batman and Catwoman uh, probably, you know, they haven't really communicated much since she left for Vilhamosa and came back. And we know that they don't communicate much between now and future states. So clearly they have to, they're looking to have some kind of reunion next issue. And yeah, again, I'm just I'm I'm re I'm loving Catwoman right now, and I'm really enjoying what Ram V is doing. And I'll say that even though I know what's going to happen with Future State Catwoman, this feels like a natural organic story. Even though I kind of know where it's leading to in Future State, I'm really enjoying the journey, reading the journey in terms of how we're getting there. So, good stuff. Yeah, I don't know. I have my doubts whether Batman shows up next issue or whether Batman is really. Is this really Batman or is she hallucinating from, from loss of blood? That's is next point. issue going to be her in a coma, you know, dreaming about how she wishes things could be or, or saying things that she wished she would have said, because like you, you mentioned, they don't like, according to what the events of future state, they do spend, you know, quite a bit of time apart. So I'll be very curious to see if Batman, tr if it's truly Batman next issue or if it's some sort of dream sequence. So I guess we'll have to wait and see. Uh, all right. Up next, Superman and the Authority, number one. Uh, I know a lot of people have been sort of highly anticipating this. This is another four-issue miniseries. I know it's going to be somewhat uh, controversial, at least in terms of some people are going to love it no matter what, and some people are going to dislike it no matter what, because the writer is Grant Morrison, and he's he's somewhat of a divisive writer. Uh, Mikhail Yanin is the artist. Jordi Belair does the colors. Steve Wands does the letters. Uh, and I, I know the more you thought about this, Rocky, the, the more you liked it. So give us your thoughts. <laughs> wow. Um, first of all, this was a little bit of a mind screw for me. And, uh, I, I compliment myself cause I, I said, I didn't, I avoided the swear word. Um, <laughs> and it's Grant Morrison. Uh, but this you know, I thought this was going to be about Superman recruiting the authority to help him rescue some Kryptonians from War World. And I'm a little bit thrown aback because suddenly we have this Superman on the cover. He looks like the Kingdom Come Superman. And he's an older looking Superman. And he spends the entire issue trying to recruit Manchester Black, who was an older member, a previous member of the authority. And... Uh, it's rather interesting. And it starts off with him having recollections of talking to 
John F. Kennedy in November of 1963, right before JFK goes to Dallas and is assassinated, Superman recalls having a conversation with JFK and JFK is, is, is telling him, uh, is asking Superman if he, if, if he can trust him to make sure that future generations won't have to fight so hard for a better world, a finer world. And Superman makes a promise to JFK and he shakes his hand. And then there's a film strip, there's a Bruder film showing, of course, what we all know to be the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And then all of a sudden it fades to black and it looks like Manchester Black is waking up from a delirious drug infested state. And so are we to believe that, that that's just a dream that Manchester Black had of Superman talking to JFK? <laughs> and in any event, Manchester Black is, is captured by the police. Uh, and there, there's some great dialogue here, fantastic art by Mikel Jan, and just absolutely gorgeous. Manchester Black is a, he's a foul-mouthed kind of pig. In fact, Superman even says in this issue that Superman does not viscerally, instinctively dislike anybody, but Superman admits to viscerally disli disliking, <laughs> instinctually disliking Manchester Black. But despite that, Superman still wants to recruit Manchester Black to help him make a better world. Because Superman, as he discloses, Superman discloses to him, He's lost some of his, Superman's lost some of his powers. And, and uh, he actually ends up saving Manchester Black's life. He puts nanites in Manchester Black's body to repair his, his injured spine that was injured when he was shot at by police during his arrest. And this, this, this is an interesting title to this issue. It's called All, All Our Tomorrows. And it really is, it's so typical Grant Morrison. It's Superman desiring a better world. And what I find, what I really like about this is that, you know, uh, this, uh, with the use of, you see, you see remnants of Kingdom Come, uh, of Mark Wade and Alex Ross's Kingdom Come with the S on Superman. You also see shades of Darwin Cook's New Frontier with JFK from the 1960s, that New Frontier, that a, a kind of illusion. Superman wants to take humanity to the stars and he wants to he wants to lead humanity because Grant Morrison is speaking through the characters and he's making fun of all these crises again and Superman even says you know we're you know we heroes we take we we focus so much on ourselves and all our crises and all our big multiversal threats that we've lost sight of humanity you know we're, we're forgetting that isn't it about making humanity better moving humanity forward and I, this is, there's no question that Grant Morrison has something to say here. And I got to say, I kind of agree with Grant Morrison because I'm getting a little sick of crises as well. <laughs> I mean, I think we all are. Enough with the death medals, enough with the crises already. Isn't it about making us all feel better? Where's the hope? Let's bring back the hope. That's what Grant Morrison is saying here through Superman. And I can't help but the more I read this, the more it really resonated with me. And, and maybe this is just my own sort of wish fulfillment here. And I, I want, I want to see something here that maybe there isn't, but I, I think Superman wins over Manchester black such that, such that Manchester black even helps Superman as he's attacked by phantom zone criminals that escape the phantom zone. And Superman takes the chance. He knows he's going to be attacked by the phantom zone criminals. He even tells Manchester black that, and he gives Manchester black every opportunity to betray him and to escape But Manchester back black embraces the better angels of his nature and helps Superman and actually agrees and they end up recruiting other members to their team, members that will not be revealed until future issues, 
but we happen to know from uh, from from solicits that we're, we're going to be getting Midnighter, Apollo, the Enchantress. We're going to be getting a couple other interesting uh, new characters, and I gotta say I'm really fascinated by this. I even love the fact that Superman shows. Uh, Manchester Black, a round table. Like, he literally shows them that he's got a version of King Arthur's round table. And this is so Grant Morrison. You know, Grant Morrison wanting a better world. Superman wanting a better world. <laughs> and this is where this is where this is headed. I really, truly hope that Mikel Jannon manages to draw more than two issues. I think I've only ever seen Mikel Jannon draw two issues consecutively, ever. I mean, I hope he draws the all 12 issues of this series, although I Probably he won't be able to because he, he can't really maintain that pacing. But in any event, we got the we got the we got the Fortress of Solitude here. We got sort of a Kingdom Come esque Superman. We got new frontier sensibilities. I gotta tell you, man, this is hitting all the right spots. And I got my I got my issues with Grant Morrison when he can go a little bit psychotic. But I actually kind of like where this is going. But what I'm not seeing is I don't really see how this perfectly fits into the current situation in Superman and action comics and I don't care I like this better I actually like this better because I think this has something to say and I think I like what it's saying what about you yeah I think you said 12 issues only four as far as I know but oh, uh, it wouldn't okay. surprise me to see it extended or if they if this is just one in a series of Superman and authority minis um because, yeah, I mean, I agree with you. Mikel Yanin's art is very detailed, and he often, other than Grayson that he did when Tom King and Tim Seeley were writing it, yeah, he tends to do, you know, three or four issues and then move on to something else or or takes a break and there's a fill-in artist or whatnot. Because I, I agree with you. His character designs here are fantastic. I am somewhat surprised that this isn't a black label book because clearly this is in some undetermined future. Superman has gray hair on his temples. He's he's older. He's grizzled a bit, um, and, and this certainly isn't you know in current DC continuity in any way, shape, or form. So, I'm curious about the decision not to put it in Black Label. Um, and we all know that I am not a Grant Morrison fan. But that being said, I am intrigued by this story. I'm intrigued by these ideas. Um, it certainly feels like, you know, one of the most classic Superman issues of all time. It's it's on just about every best of Superman story list I ever see is issue 775, which is actually the first appearance of Manchester Black. What's so funny about Truth, Justice, and the American Way? It's written by Joe Kelly. Yeah. If I didn't know better, if I didn't have that knowledge in my mind and somebody asked me, who do you think created Manchester Black? Grant Morrison would be very high up on my list of guesses, right? Manchester Black is so a Grant Morrison character. You know, he, he is the perfect example of a Grant Morrison character. He morally bankrupt, uh, completely over the top. Um, he's just the epitome of, of a character that Grant Morrison would create. So uh, I, it's no surprise that as this story launches that he's the first character that Grant Morrison sinks his teeth into and and he nails the characterization of of manchester black a hundred percent and like you rocky i'm i'm pleasantly surprised by what morrison does here by M morrison's characterization of of superman despite i wouldn't call myself a morrison fan and and despite me disliking most of what he does one story that i is probably my favorite morrison story and that i do love very much is all-star superman 
which Morrison did. Yes. This is not that Superman. This is a different characterization of Superman, one in which Superman feels like maybe he's coming to the end of the line and, you know, going back to how this feels sort of like a sequel to uh, what's so funny about Truth, Justice, and the American Way, Superman is maybe pivoting because he feels the end is near to sort of an idea that maybe I should take a little harsher uh, stance on things, right? Which is what the authority is all about, right? Maybe I should use my powers. Maybe I should use a little bit of a stronger uh, fist uh, rather than the, the open hand in order to to set things right. A little bit of the ends justify the means. And so even though Superman himself talks about how he can't stand Manchester Black, he's just at a place in his life where he's willing to do whatever it takes and maybe work with some people he wouldn't normally in order to leave behind a world that, that he can be proud of and feel like he that he being Superman did everything that he needed to do in order to, to leave the world in a good spot, leave the universe or galaxy or earth or, or whatever in a good spot. So I am intrigued by it. I am a little confused, as I said, because why isn't this a black label book? Uh, did, are they, are they specifically saying that it is in continuity because it isn't a black label book? Um, and it's just at some indeterminate time in the future. Uh, at the end of the day, it, it, do, it doesn't matter. Just give me a good story and give me good art. And the art by Mikhail Yanin is absolutely fantastic. I mean, I'm a huge Mikhail Yanin fan, so not not a surprise how much I love it. But beyond the storytelling and the line work and the great, the great facial expressions from Manchester Black, the costume that Superman's wearing, you mentioned being reminiscent of Kingdom Come, uh, no cape. Uh, I think it looks great. Uh, multicolored gloves and, you know, despite Superman being older and looking a little grizzled, he definitely still looks powerful and capable. And that's something that comes across in the story as well from Grant Morrison. Superman's capability of, yeah, maybe physically his physical powers are, uh, are fading, but his, uh, his analytical mind, his intelligence, his ability to, to be tactical and, uh, and use Kryptonian technology um, you know, he, he even talks about, about it himself saying, yeah, I might be not as powerful as I was physically, but Kryptonian super science is advanced as, as it ever was. Um, and, and using that knowledge to, to do whatever it is that he has planned in order to do before he, uh, before he succumbs to whatever the ravages of age or, or whatever else he may be uh, experiencing. So, uh, while I didn't like it as much as Rocky, I thought it was a good start. And I, I go back to Manchester Black in the hands of Grant Morrison is a is a perfect pairing. Uh, whether or not this characterization of Superman in the hands of Grant Morrison is a perfect pairing, I guess you'll have to ask me after issue four. But uh, I thought this was a good start. Fantastic uh, artwork from Mikhail Yanin, and I, I enjoyed it. Yeah, I just want to quickly add that it's there's a, there are some shadows in terms of who the enemy is in this series. And there, it's in shadow, and I, I think there's, uh, for those watching on YouTube, I think the shadow looks like it could be Mongol. The shadowy figure could be Magog, since this does have a Kingdom Come illusion. Uh, it could even be Doomsday, a talking Doomsday, but I suspect it's probably Mongol or Magog. Uh, some of the other villains I see that are surrounding in Earth's orbit, uh, I see Eclipso, I see Rose, uh, the Ravager, uh, and, but I'm not really sure who the other three villains are sitting around that table. Can you tell, Jace? 
No, I couldn't. And what's interesting is, and, and I don't know if this is just, you know, he is, when you think of Superman and Superman villains, he's always the first one that comes to mind. So I sort of wondered, and, and the first thing that, the first name that kind of popped into my head was Lex Luthor. Now I know that this, the silhouette, the shadow of whoever this, this head villain is, is very much, looks very much larger than Lex, but I, I kind of attributed that to, well, could Lex have built himself a larger armor? Could it just be a matter of perspective? Um, I don't know, but for some reason I got a Lex Luthor vibe and, you know, Lex is always the one on earth that has kryptonite and clearly this, this villain does have kryptonite. So, um, so I don't know. I, I, I don't really have a preference. Um, I kind of think maybe not Mongol just because Mongol's the big bad over in uh, action comics for, uh, for Philip Kennedy Johnson. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. And, and I didn't recognize any of the, the villains beyond the, the ones that you, you named. Um, so yeah, uh, wouldn't mind if it's, it's Lex, uh, if it turns out to be somebody new, that would be okay also. Um, but yeah, not, not sure at this point. So it's a wait and see. Uh, all right, on to the next book. We're going to talk about uh, Supergirl and the Woman of Tomorrow. This is from writer Tom King. Bilquis Evely handles the art. Matias Lopez on colors. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed this issue. What did you think, Rocky? Um, I'm just uh, bringing it up here. Sorry. Um, I, I thought this was kind of a, a little bit of a filler issue for me, to be blunt. Uh, but I didn't, I didn't mind it. But it was it was kind of a filler issue for me. Um, just um, sorry, I thought I had some notes here, but uh, uh, I actually this is the one where I didn't make any notes on because I felt it was uh, th this was exposition heavy. This was definitely exposition heavy. Uh, I enjoyed this almost more for the beautiful uh, uh, Bill Chris Everly art. Uh, this is just you know this. The young girl that basically had hired Supergirl to f help find the person who had killed her father on her planet where she was basically, her and her family are rock farmers of all things and reminiscent of the uh, the old John Wayne Western. Um, uh, this is a play on the John Wayne Western. I forget what it is. Uh, uh, yeah, it's the one that they've recently remade with Jeff Bridges. And yeah. I can't think of it either. Was it... Uh, I'll look it up while you keep true, talking. Not true grit. Yeah, it, yeah, true grit. It, it is it. true grit. Yeah, yeah. Where the young, the young girl comes and and you know recruits an old washed up uh, gunslinger yeah. to help right. her get revenge. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. This, this entire issue really involves them traveling on a space flight as as they're flying away from the red sun. Supergirl slowly getting her powers back, and they're. And they're just sort of mingling with other alien species, and and it's just uh, it's rather odd. This this young alien girl has it's funny for for being the daughter for having like six or seven brothers and being the daughter of a rock farmer. She seems she speaks with a high with a high degree of sophistication with her her use of language, which I find rather rather odd, but also rather interesting. Supergirl herself seems to be uh seems to be going through something very we know from last issue she basically wanted to she's clearly dealing with something she's dealing with a 
she's dealing with her own issues that she, and unresolved issues. She was 21 years old. She went to a planet with a red sun to get drunk because uh, she did, doesn't have her powers when she's under a red sun. So she just enjoyed basically a night out getting drunk all by herself. Um, it's interesting that a lot of people... Uh, some people were highly critical of the first issue and highly critical of Tom King, thinking that Supergirl has lots of friends and she would never go to a planet all by herself just to get drunk and everything else. And I got to say, I couldn't disagree more with some of that sentiment. I mean, cut the girl a break. I mean, we've all at times, I mean, uh, anybody who says they've never once drank alone or occasionally like to be alone and get drunk. I mean, come on. I mean, uh, cut the girl a break. She's... Uh, some people take uh, offense to the fact that this Supergirl clearly has some anger issues. Uh, certainly the Supergirl in the last uh, 15 to 20 years, going back uh, certainly to the beginning of the new, of new 52 era where she was a Red Lantern, for God's sakes, uh, where her anger, she became a Red Lantern because of that. Uh, during the Rogel Czar uh, Supergirl storyline written by Mark Andreco, her anger attracted Rogel Czar's axe. So look, maybe you don't like the fact, maybe that that Wonder Woman has that part of me, Wonder Woman, that Supergirl has some anger issues, but it is in her continuity. So granted, look, if you don't like the continuity, all the power to you. There's lots of continuity things that I don't like either. For, but it is in the history of this character. So I don't think it's, in my view, I think it's unfair to fault Tom King for using that as a plot point. To, to, to suggest that Wonder Woman, uh, Wonder Woman, here I go again, that Supergirl has some anger issues. And he's basically suggesting that it might stem from the fact, as this young girl reminds Supergirl, that did you ever get revenge for what happened to Krypton when you lost your planet? And Supergirl, Supergirl says, no, she didn't. And ultimately, Supergirl decides she's going to help this girl. She's 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 vi Supergirl is living vicariously through this young girl. As this young girl seeks redemption and revenge for the death of her father. Supergirl is, I think, trying to uh, uh, vicariously obtain some type of satisfaction for her own issues as well. And this really comes through in the interactions and the dialogue in this issue. It's exposition heavy. I know a lot of people won't like that. And, uh, I, and I think in many ways this issue could... I don't... This is sort of rehashing territory that we covered in the first issue, but it flushes us out a little bit more. The art is fantastic. The way Bill Chris Everly uh, illustrates space, illustrates the interactions, illustrates Supergirl, how Supergirl looks at the various alien races and how they look. And, and, and just uh, this, this really works. Uh, I mean, I felt this. I think this is, I think this is emotionally resonant. And I, I can't believe this. If you'd have told me like a year ago that I'd be defending Tom King stories, I am I am officially, I mean, I actually like ninety percent of what I'm reading from Tom King right now. I mean, it's unbelievable, uh, and I and I I don't have any excuse for it. it. It's just good writing. I mean, I look, I've 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 been so hard on Tom King. I know you and I, well, I'm probably more me than you, but no, I got to give full props to Tom King here. I'm fully enjoying this. I'm on board and I'm, I'm looking forward to see, I'm looking forward to see how this is going to end up resolving itself because a lot of people are saying Tom King is not going to have an original ending. He's just going to copy the true grit plot points, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe he will. He has done that in the past, but uh, quite frankly, I don't care. I'm enjoying this. And if you're going to copy something, you might as well copy a good story. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I do agree with you that it's exposition heavy. And I, I sort of feel like the only forward momentum we get in the story happens in like the last three pages where we get to the point in the story where the girl recaps 
what has already happened for her, but we haven't seen, right? Like the end of last issue, it's Superman and uh, Supergirl rather in crypto. Uh, and they're both wounded by the arrows from uh, Krem of the Yellow Hills. And okay, so how did we get to that point? What happened between that point that last issue ended and the beginning of this issue where, uh, where this girl and, and, um, and Supergirl are, are traveling somewhere, crypto's nowhere to be seen. And I did wonder about that. Like, well, wait, where's crypto? So in the last couple of pages, we get sort of what happened between last issue and the beginning of this issue. And we know that, yes, Supergirl did agree to, to help this girl. And uh, part of why she's going after Creme of the Yellow Hills is to save crypto. And like we talked about in Superman Red and Blue, that makes total sense. Every kid needs a dog, and we know the the love that <laughs> yeah. that Kara has for, for crypto. Um, I do agree with Rocky as well about it's interesting that this young this young girl who grew up you know dirt poor as a, a rock farmer has such flowery language, um, and that that flowery language, the cadence, the the choice of words that Tom King uses, it's a little fantastical. It's a little sort of fantasy. Uh, and what I love about that, I, what I love about the feel of it, the, it feels almost a little like old English at times. It so perfectly matches the Bilquis Evanly line work, which also feels a little old English, a little fantasy, uh, maybe a little, you know, lion, witch in the wardrobe, um, you know, a little Victorian. There's all those spices and influences uh, kind of thrown in there. Um it is clear in reading this issue that that this girl is actually telling this story much later in her life. Uh, at one point, she even um, she even references her elderly ears uh, when she asks Supergirl that that question that Rocky alluded to earlier. Um, I asked her how she felt uh, about did did you too seek to avenge the death of your family and. Uh, the girl says, I can't in truth tell you why I asked the question. Uh, it was on my mind and I said it. All I can give you is her answer, which rings in my elderly ears as clear today as it did in those old times. So this woman is clearly telling this story much later in, in her life. So that That's may explain like why. She... That's just like True Grit. That's exactly the book, True Grit. I'm told it's the same thing. The girl is narrating oh, gotcha. it as an older woman. Gotcha. So I, I've actually never seen True Grit, either one of the movies or read the book. So I, I did not know that. Um, but it, it could possibly explain why, you know, maybe she goes on after having this adventure with Supergirl to, you know, ha live a life where she learns a lot more, becomes a writer or, or whatever. It doesn't really matter because the, the tone and the vocabulary and the way she speaks is very intriguing and very engaging regardless. Um, and you're right. Uh, Rocky, anybody who's complaining about the characterization of Supergirl here that Tom King has given us hasn't been following along <laughs> with what has happened to Supergirl since the, the new 52. She has been very angry. She was the leader of the Red Lanterns. She was very angry and went on this, this sort of revenge mission against Rogal Zar. She was able to utilize Rogal Zar's axe, which responds to rage um, so clearly anybody who thinks, Hey, why is Supergirl so angry? They haven't been paying attention. And um, she was infected well, as well. She was infected by the Batman who laughs because uh, of her. Yeah, too. that's correct. With the anti, the anti-life equation. So that yeah. plays a factor as well. Um, but getting back to that, that question and what Supergirl answered where 
you know, this, this little girl is, had asked her this question, you know, did you ever get a chance to, to revenge or to avenge the death of your family? And Supergirl's response is, no, I didn't. But again, it was the tone with which Supergirl answered. And, and the, the little girl says, in her response, I heard a whole life of regret. That to me was the most powerful line in the entire story. Um, and speaks to the care again, the characterization of Supergirl, what she may be carrying around, the sense of guilt. And people are like, well, why her and not Superman? Well, Superman was a baby when he left Krypton. He has no memory of it. You, you have to remember that Supergirl is old enough to have memories uh, and have emotional feelings because of those memories for the people that she lost. She was much older and it has to do with you know, her being in suspended animation and taking her ro rocket taking longer to travel to Earth of, of why Superman is basically physically older than her at this point. Yeah. Whereas uh, technically um, Supergirl was born first. So I, I think that was a very powerful line. You know, I heard a whole lifetime of regret. Um, and Supergirl, Supergirl, Supergirl doesn't want the young girl to have a lifetime of regret herself. And so that's why she exactly. wants to help her. It, it goes both ways. I mean, it's either like either one of them could be could be saying this this dialogue, this this exposition, because they're both mere reflections of each other. They only differ in age in many ways. Yeah, exactly. So this is great. I mean, I expected it to be great. But once again, Tom King is uh, impressing me and um, you know, so I've been accused of being a Tom King stan. Tom King is a friend of mine. That doesn't mean I like everything he does. <laughs> there are things that Tom King does that I don't like. Uh, stories that he's written that I don't particularly care for or issues where, that he's written that I'm like, ah, Tom, I don't know about that. Sometimes I think he has a tendency to overcomplicate things. But uh, you want to talk about a great story. He's nailing it in Rorschach and he's nailing it here in the Supergirl uh, Woman of Tomorrow. Absolutely love this issue. Uh, well despite done. the fact that we only get a little bit of forward momentum, but I think it was necessary. I think we really have a better understanding of how these two relate to each other. And I would expect, um, with only six issues to go, the rest of it to be, um, have a little more action, but I imagine Tom's still going to take the time to give us some, some great character moments, which again, the Bilquis Evely art showcases that very, very well. Uh, all right. Up to The Flash, number 772. This is written by Jeremy Adams. Will Conrad is the artist. Alex Sinclair on colors. Steve Wands on letters. Job Hunt this feels like a standalone issue. Um, and it starts out with Wally basically uh, kind of lamenting over all the bills that he has. Uh, you know, he's been on this time-traveling adventure that, that culminated in the latest Flash annual. And he gets back home and... Uh, Linda's like, you know, you keep saying that word and Wally keeps groaning, no, no, over and over. Uh, and she's like, but the bills don't go away. You know, you, you may not have been here. Wally's like, yeah, I, I just got back. How can we have all these bills? And uh, and Linda reminds him, yeah, the world keeps turning, man, whether you're here or not. So Wally basically realizes he needs to get a job. And of all things, he gets a job at like a, a Jiffy Lube and pisses off this old lady who thinks he's took too long to to service her car so yeah, he's not just fast that enough wally's not fast yeah. enough <laughs> yeah wally's not fast enough that juxtaposition of the fastest man alive not being fast enough uh is is pretty funny but then who shows up but mr terrific because he actually owns the speedy lube uh and the, the whole company and he gives wally a different job more commensurate with his skills which i love so if this is the new sort of status quo for wally where he's working with mr terrific 
trying to explore the multiverse and you know, this idea is rife for story, right? So uh, I thought it was inspired. Uh, I think Will Conrad's art does suit the Flash uh, stories because his art is very classically super heroic. Um, If I had any nitpick, I don't think he draws Wally quite as physically imposing as he should. I think he should, he's a a little skinny (laughs) is what I'm saying. I think it should be a little bulkier. Uh, But overall, I thought this was a fun issue. Um, and sort of uh, transitional issue in that it, it probably sets up the, the status quo for Wally going forward. So um, a little wordy at times from Jeremy Adams. Um, thought he could have done with a, a little less dialogue uh, in places. But uh, as far as what's actually being said, uh, I, I do like the, the voice and the, kind of the way Wally sounds under the pen of, uh, of Jeremy Adams. So all in all, a, a decent issue. Heat Wave shows up at the end. Uh, so classic rogues villain showing up, which is always a good thing in a flash book. So yeah, I think fans of Wally West will, should be happy. Uh, it's Wally back headlining the flash book. So we'll see how it goes from here. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I just like the normality a little bit. I have, there's just been, it's just been go, go, go run, 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 run with the flash. And I know that's kind of, I'm not trying to be funny, uh, or comical. I'm just, I'm being dead serious. There, there has to, this Flash is a comic that needs to slow down. Let's just get some decent character work. And we get it here. We, we, got, we got Linda. We got kids. We got Wally getting a job. Just slow down. Let him, let him enjoy his life a little bit. Let us readers have a collective sigh and a breath. And even here, a good character moment with Heatwave, who it's revealed is dying of cancer. And so Heatwave is on a crime spree that he might have some motivation here. He's on his last hurrah. Um, and, you know, Wally West, you know, uh, there's Wally West. I like the fact that Mr. Terrific, who, who incidentally, uh, you mentioned the Jiffy Lube, Mr. Terrific apparently owns all the Jiffy Lubes in the United States. <laughs> of course he does. He's a billionaire. Mm. And uh, he's, so he wants, to, he wants Wally West. He figures Wally West is better to work in his lab where he's researching multiversal physics. And even though Wally doesn't know a lot about math, uh, Mr. Terrific obviously understands that since he can – you know, Wally along with Barry and every other speedster in the multiverse. I mean, they're kind of a rare breed, so it probably pays to have one of them on your, on your, if you're going to be researching the multiverse and complicated physics, having a, a speedster on your team is probably a good idea. So Mr. Terrific was good about that. Wally West has a stable job. He's got good income. He's got the kids. He's, he's happy. And uh, now he, you know, and now he's, he's going to be dealing with heat wave. I kind of like this. It's not complicated. This is just a nice, you know, there are hints. There is a, at at some point, there is a, there's a giant sword that appears somewhere in the multiverse here. uh, And we're not really sure, you know, what it is. A blade continues its course through the multiverse. What is this blade? Uh, And, you know, who's going to wield it? We don't know. So there's hints of a larger plot coming along. So we got hints of a larger multiversal plot line, uh, and we got we got Wally West. We got some personal moments with Linda and the kids, and we got his, a Rogues member Heatwave dying of cancer coming back. He's going to have his last hurrah. This is good. Jeremy Adams is doing a really good job here. This isn't complicated stuff. It's just good, entertaining, wholesome fun, and. I'm I'm just it just put a shit eating grin on my face, man. And uh, I tell you, I'm a Jeremy Adams fans for life because of that Flash annual last week. 
which uh, we got we got more than a few comments uh, last week in terms of our little <laughs> yeah. spat on that. So it was it definitely ruffled some feathers. But I think I think hopefully in a good way, you know, there's whether it's good or bad PR, depending on how you viewed the annual, I think it's going to get give some flash, some good love here from readers. Yeah, I, I agree. Wally West fans are, are being serviced well right now in the DCU. So, uh, all right, on to the, the last book we're going to talk about, Justice League United Order Part 2 from writer Brian Michael Bendis, art by Steve Pugh, colors by Ramulo Fajardo Jr., letters by Josh Reed. Uh, and we saw at the uh, the end of last issue, uh, Sinmar was headed toward Earth. Uh, Oliver and... Uh, and Black Canary, Oliver Queen, and uh, and Dinah Lance were confronted by this man calling himself uh, da- Damien. Is that is that what he's his name is? Uh, yeah, Damien Rose. Rose. Damon Rose. Yeah, Damon Rose. And we get a big bombshell from uh, from him. So uh, I'll let you go first, Rocky. What were your thoughts? Well, uh, yeah, uh, it's kind of. Very clearly, Bendis is, and we we talked about this. We've talked about this before, and whether you like it or not, you know, it's funny. You, you, we talked about a you know Sheridan verse. Tim Sheridan over in the pages of Teen Titans and Shazam. He's got a Sheridan verse. There's absolutely a Bendis verse in the DC universe here. Bendis is creating it. His he's wrapping his Justice League story. He's tying it in with with, with Checkmate in a big way here. And uh, we know that that Green Arrow is a member of Checkmate, and it's clear that he hasn't even bothered to tell Black Canary that. Uh, but he's working with Checkmate, and we know other members of Checkmate are Steve Trevor, Lois Lane, and and a slew of others. And here we have Damon Rose show up, and Damon Rose is uh, we thought we thought if, we're, if you're reading Checkmate number one, the idea. The impression given is that this Damon Rose is actually an assassin who is going to be used to to, to kill, uh, well, as, as an agent of Leviathan. And here he shows up, and apparently he reveals that, surprise, surprise, big revelation, possible speculation alert if anybody cares. He's Lois Lane's brother. And, and then Deathstroke shows up, and Deathstroke wants to take out Oliver Queen, because is Deathstroke working for Leviathan? Not really sure. Uh, Damon Rose is there. For what purpose? We don't know because we, it's, again, it's frustrating. We get this Bendis dialogue where there's a lot of snappy repertoire be- in dialogue between the, the, all the characters, but nothing is revealed. It's that Bendis is a master at having massive amounts of dialogue where nothing of substance is revealed to the reader. And that's exactly what we get here, except out of the blue. Oh, by the way, Damon Rose, you know, I'm Lois Lane's brother. Well, that's a little bit of a mind screw because I'm never, I don't, that's gotta be a first. I've, I've Lois Lane had a brother. Uh, if I mean, that's, that's stunning to me. And uh, it's gotta be stunning to, to most people. Uh, the implications of that, does Lois Lane know that her dad, Sam Lane? I don't think it would surprise Lois to know that Sam Lane may have screwed around on her mother. Uh, we don't know much about Lois Lane's mother, we, but we always know a lot about Sam Lane. He's a military man. Uh, and apparently, I guess he screwed around on Lois. I, I A part of me screwed around on Lois's mother. <laughs> Sorry. So I, I don't know. I'm, I don't know what to make of it. it. To me, it seems like pure... Sh- 
pure shock value. I mean, we've been tr- I've been trying so desperately along with so many readers trying to figure out where what is Bendis trying to say about Leviathan about what's the big deal? He owns a country now. He Leviathan supposedly took over all the intelligence organizations, but he clearly failed because they're all coming back. We got Checkmate back. We got the DEO is back because Dr. Bones, Director Bones is investigating the multiverse. So whatever Leviathan thought he did in in wrecking all the intelligence agencies, he's clearly failed. So now he owns a country. So what's what's Leviathan's endgame here? And more importantly, why should anybody care? And why should we care about Damon Rose? Well, it's not because he's that important, but hey, guess what? He's Lois Lane's brother. So is that why we're supposed to care? Because Lois Lane has a brother now? I hate to say this, but it feels a little bit like cheap theatrics to me. It's like you're out of some, you're out of high plot points for your narrative, so you're you're dropping a bombshell like that, hoping to get some cheap points with readership. Um, you know, again, but hey, look, uh, the art by Steve uh, Steve Pug, uh, Pug is is fantastic. Uh, I'm not a big fan of uh, uh, Singmar Utopica, Sinmar Utopica, the the villain here. He was never flushed out in the pages of Superman and action comics. So, but he's just blindly attacking the Hall of Justice. While I guess the other highlights are Naomi's parents got to meet John Constantine in the basement of the Hall of Justice. Yay! <laughs> okay. Um, while while the Wondertons activate and form of a pail of water that they throw on Aquaman, so Aquaman can power up thanks to the Wonder Twins. I mean, there's some absurd moments here that are almost laugh out loud funny. They're so stupid, but um, there are some really great majestically drawn moments of the Justice League flying towards Sinma Utopica. There's some really good action sequences here. Bendis often brags about trying to write to his artists, and he did, he, did, he did that with good effect with David Marquez in previous issues. He does that to good effect here with Steve Pugh. So I want to get, you know, they deserve at least that. Uh, and maybe this narrative is going somewhere. We shall see. But uh, overall, I'm... You know, I'm still sort of left. This is a lot of flash, not a lot of substance in terms of flash in the pan, big revelation. But I'm not really sure why we're supposed to care. We get a lot of spectacle, but not a lot of plot. And uh, I'm I'm still frustrated with that respect. And I, and I and then I, I got to say this ending here drove me crazy because it's so stupid. We have what are the odds? We have Deathstroke, Green Arrow. Black Canary and this new great assassin called Damon Rose, and they all end up shooting each other and knocking each other out at the same time. It's like one of those cheap YouTube boxing videos where the boxers knock each other out and the referee and all three are knocked out in the boxing ring. It's a, it's, you know, what are the odds of that? It's just, there's an absurdity to it. And it sort of reminded me with Bendis writing that, you know, it's like the bad math equation that Barry Allen had, you know, a couple issues ago where he did bad math and he, he, he sent them off to Naomi's world with bad math. Just as kind of an absurd plot point. And here this one ends with, you know, Green Arrow, Black Canary, <laughs> and Deathstroke and Damon Rose all knocking each other out. It just, it just seems, again, and for what? What did we learn this issue other than Lois Lane has a brother? Uh, and, and, and it's not even a big deal. Anyways, uh, I, I'm I'm frustrated. It's this is a beautiful, insignificant mess with a with a revelation that some people might care about. Because does anybody remember Wonder Woman's brother Jason? Probably very few. Uh, 
Is Lois Lane's brother going to be a blip in the radar of DC history? We shall see. Yeah, you used the perfect word there, mess. That's exactly the word that I would use to describe this issue. Uh, the argument could be made that nobody cares less about DC continuity or history than Brian Michael Bendis. Maybe it's because he doesn't know it that well. I doubt that. I think it's just that he just doesn't care. He wants to tell a story that has weight. And how is he going to add weight? Let me let me drop this bombshell that Lois Lane has a brother. So here we go, retcon once again. Uh, you are right that Sam Lane has always been a bit of a scumbag, and it wouldn't be surprising to hear that he screwed around. So in that way, I guess it works even better than uh, the idea of Melinda Zuko, but, but I'm not a fan of it. It feels unnecessary. It feels like, uh, you know, like you said, cheap theatrics. Uh, as far as the majority of the story, the, the Sinmar Utopica, I agree with you. He never got fleshed out correctly and, uh, or fully in the pages of Superman. So even, you know, they comment, the, the characters themselves comment on it in this issue. Uh, getting a little meta, maybe, because maybe Bendis doesn't even have the answer. Like, what's this guy's deal? Why is he coming and attacking Earth? So Why does he want Superman dead? I don't know, because reasons? Because Bendis needs a bad guy that's super powerful, apparently? It, it, it doesn't make any sense. There's no motivation, so why should I care? I don't understand the character of Sinmar. Um, his motivations aren't clear, so it just ends up being like a sh you shrug your shoulders going, yeah, why, why should it matter? Um so, yeah, it's just not a very good comic. Um, shout out to Bendis, I guess, for the nostalgia. You, you mentioned it, that Super Friends moment, because that's straight out of a Super Friends cartoon. <laughs> yeah. uh, let's throw – let's let's have uh, uh, Zan turn into a bucket of water so we can throw it on Aquaman so he can feel refreshed. <laughs> straight out of a, a, an, an episode of, of the Super Friends. So, yeah, um, Bendis hasn't given us any reason to care about any of the events happening in this in this book. So guess what? I don't care about any any of the events happening in this book. Um, the art the art's pretty solid, um, perhaps due to the fact that uh, Steve Pugh hasn't worked a lot with Bendis. We get a lot of a lot of panels uh, with a lot of dialogue because, as we know, Bendis is always super dialogue heavy. Uh, I have a feeling when he's working with artists that he knows and has worked with a lot more, like a Dave Marquez, that those artists are able to influence Bendis a little bit and get him to, to cut back on some of the dialogue. Um, and we, and you know, David Marquez is going to draw what he wants. And so we get these big double page spreads that I co have commented on in previous issues with, you know, all this dialogue stuck in there with these insets because you, you can only cut so much dialogue from Bendis book, but my God, the pages, the first few pages with black canary and green arrow talking to this, uh, Damien Rose, it is just word balloon after word balloon after word balloon. I mean, you get exhausted just looking at the the next page after that is even worse, Rocky. Um, you just look at that page and, and people are like, God, do I, do I even want to read this? I mean, that's going to, it's going to take me forever to, to, to wade through all that. I mean, it's just so dialogue heavy, but it's what we've come to expect from Bendis. And I guess if you're a Bendis fan, you probably like this, but I've yet to, to find a reason to care about anything Bendis has done at DC because um, the characters just don't connect to me um, and, and what stories he, he is telling they're, they're plot driven. Not, I'm not saying they're good plots, but they're plot driven rather than character driven. So even though I'm, I know these characters, I'm invested in these characters. Bendis's take on the characters doesn't, doesn't intrigue me. 
Like I, I could never read anything else about Lois Lane's brother. Like, and I wouldn't care. Supposedly that's a big deal, right? Lois Lane has a brother. I should care about that. I should want to know, Oh, what's that story? How did Sam Lane have a son? Like, how come he hasn't shown up before? How is he in, involved in espionage and whatnot? But I don't care because Bendis hasn't given me a reason to care. So it's also really weird that th- this is a revelation that's taken place in the pages of Justice League as opposed to Superman, or that the yep. revelation isn't taking place with Lois Lane being actually present. I, I mean, it's such an <laughs> odd revelation to take place in the presence of Black Canary and Green Arrow of all people. It just seems yep. such an odd place to put a major revelation in one of the most greatest, greatest, you know iconographic uh, heroes of all time, Superman. I mean, his, his wife, Lois Lane, it just seems like a really dumb place to put a revelation like this. It just, you know, it's so underwhelming. It almost, you know, if you blink, you miss it. Like, like who's going to get excited for this? I mean, it's just, you know, it's just so, I don't know. It's, it's just so, I just shake my head. It's like, like, I don't, I just, like you said, I just don't know if I, if we're supposed to care. Are we supposed to care? I mean, I don't, I don't know. I don't know whether I'm supposed to or not, but I don't. That's for sure. And <laughs> later on when it's referenced, oh, yeah, Lois Lane has a brother. People are going to be like, where the hell did that happen? <laughs> so anyway, uh, the backup story is The Eternal Night Part 2 from Ram V, art by Sumit Kumar, colors by Rubilo Fajardo Jr., letters by Rob Lee. Uh, what would you think of this one, Rocky? Uh, you know, I, I continue to like uh, Justice League Dark. I, I, I like the, the story here. Uh, this continues the story of, of Elnaru Rashtu. She's the 13th knight. And she, uh, in this particular chapter, uh, uh, Batman helps her enter the mind of Randhir Singh, who is, uh, who is uh, in the past, he was a, he's a powerful psychic who in the past has worked with uh, the demon Etrigan and, slash Jason, Jason Blood. And uh, this uh, Randhir guy, this who is, this is the old guy with the long beard sort of strapped to the, chair he's he's sort of trapped in his own dreams and the 13th night El Naru she's going to go into his mind to try to help him escape the nightmares in his own mind and Batman helps her do that because Batman through his own through his tech use of technology there's an interesting interaction between Batman's technology and, and the magics uh, that are involved in having this uh Ranger Singh sort of lost in his own mind uh basically uh, they, Elnaru, the 13th night, goes in to try to rescue Randhir and because Randhir knows what Merlin is up to back in Atlantis. Because Merlin, if you recall, Merlin entered that library of that, that mystical library of Alexandra, what it was, where he, he obtained information and he discovered that there's a, a great repository of magic in ancient Atlantis, and that's where Merlin is. And this issue ends with uh, while the Thirteenth Knight is helping uh, is helping Ranjir Singh escape his bad dreams. Uh, the members of the other members of Justice League Dark are confronting Merlin uh, at Atlantis, and of course that's Aqu- uh, along with Aquaman. So you got Aquaman, Zatara, Constantine, Ragman, Demon, and Bibbo, the detective chimp all in Atlantis, ready to confront Merlin. Merlin is prepared for them. He seems a few steps ahead. And uh, we, we got to remember that uh, we know we know from Future State that Merlin ultimately ends up ends up being victorious. And, and the only way that Merlin can be defeated is what Jason Blood told 
the demon, or pardon me, what, what Dr. Fate, Khalid Nasur, told Jason Blood, the demon, saying that the demon is apparently a special kind of being, that, that the future's not written in stone because the demon has sort of an interesting ability maybe to, the past is not yet written, so the future can change. And that's sort of what we have to rely upon with our knowledge that Merlin will ultimately win. Maybe, maybe there's still hope uh, with what Jason, uh, the demon knows in conjunction with, in conduct conjunction with Ranheer Singh, who has worked with him before and the 13th night. So I got to say, uh, reading all these chapters together, I I'm looking forward to, if they ever collect this as a trade paperback, I might just buy the trade paperback of just the justice league dark issues because I would much rather have. And we've said this before, we're sounding like broken records every time we review Justice League, that, that the Justice League dark should be the, the primary story here because it's that uh, it's just that much more of a rich, uh, fully thought out story, but in fewer pages. It's actually quite stark, the difference in the quality of the storytelling. Yeah, uh, based on the fact that the young Wonder Woman story uh, that Jordi Belair is writing, we, we got word that it's being collected. Right. Uh, I have a feeling that the Justice League Dark will be uh, collected as well. Uh, I agree with Rocky again. Not to sound like a broken record. It's it's obviously the, <laughs> the higher quality story of the two. Uh, I'm like liking this character of Eleonora uh, Rushdu. Uh, you know, the thirteenth night of the of the Round Table. Um, I love the fact that Aquaman shows up here uh, at the end. Um, yeah, I just I thought it was inspired storytelling here. I, I like the Batman appearance again. You know. Batman is so overused. We've talked about that plenty of times on the on the podcast. But at least here, there's reasons for him showing up. Like right? Ramvi gives legitimate reasons that she's in Gotham, you know, uh, and he's not overused. And it, it makes sense that he would show up here. And I, I love that he acknowledges that Eleonora is is capable to go inside um, this guy's brain uh, on her own. Uh, he he, even though he's just met her, that shows that he has confidence in her and shows that she's capable. So. Uh, again, um, I, I guess I slightly prefer the uh, Zermonico art, but that's just a personal preference. Sumet Kumar is, is definitely a great artist. I do enjoy his art here more than I did in the, the Future State work that he did. Uh, the art here is a little tighter. Um, and uh, as far as the storytelling choices that he makes, they're, they're very solid. Uh, particularly love the double-page spread with Eleonora kind of running into this guy's brain uh, as her armor appears as she's running through these, these doorways. So all in all, I thought it was a, a pretty solid, uh, pretty solid issue for justice league dark, despite um, the problems I had with the main story. So uh, anyway, that's the last book. Uh, let me give a, a rundown on some of the other DC stuff that's on sale this week in case you want to pick it up. Uh, Future state wonder woman has a trade paperback, Legends of the Dark Knight number three is appearing in print. That's based on the Derek Robertson uh, digital first or, or is the Derek Robertson digital first story that's uh, appearing in print. Uh, there's a Suicide Squad Case Files volume one trade paperback. There's also a, uh, I thought there was a Looney Tunes issue this week. I guess not. Uh, but there is a Truth and Justice number six of seven and then a Wonder Woman Lords and Liars trade paperback which is basically the Mariko Tamaki run of uh, Wonder Woman, which, which started out enjoyable and, and quickly became less so. <laughs> I won't disparage it any more than that here. Uh, we talked about it plenty uh, as it was coming out. So, 
yeah, so that does it for the, the DC books this week. Uh, I am absolutely overwhelmed with work right now. So other than this and the new comics Wednesday episode, probably not going to have much out this week. Uh, I don't know about you, Rocky, anything to, uh, to tease as far as other episodes. Uh, not particularly this week, this week I'm, I'm really busy at work myself and I've got a lot of prep work to do even after this, uh, this, uh, live, this, this podcast here. So, but, uh, yeah, I, I'd love to, but, uh, unfortunately, uh, comic books are, it's, it's, I, I can't yeah, make duty. a living reviewing comic books. <laughs> yeah, duty duty calls for both of us this week. So, uh, but we do appreciate the support, everybody. We appreciate you joining us and uh, and giving your comments on uh, these episodes when they come out. So, if you're listening to the podcast side, as I always do, I remind everybody: be sure you head over to YouTube, the Comic Boom exclamation point channel. Make sure you're uh, subscribing to Rocky. Give this video a like. Hit that uh, notification bell so you know whenever new content comes out or he uh, gets a chance to go live. Conversely, if you're checking us out on the Comic Book Channel, the Comic Source podcast is uh, available on all podcast platforms. Just do a search for the Comic Source and you'll find us there. So uh, really pre appreciate you joining us as always. Uh, and we'll talk to you next time. See you later, guys. You can find the Comic Source podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.